Fish, I think you better come over here. Carl, you got your little black book? Yes. Give me the number for something impossible to access. Okay. What about this Federal Reserve Transfer Node, Culpeper, Virginia? Yeah, sure, good luck. 900 billion a day goes through there. That'll do. Punch it in. You won't get in. It's encrypted. See? Mother, that last contact. <sighs> Look at this place. Anybody want to shut down the federal room? Dennis. Kev. It's the uh, first week of the podcast that we don't actually work together. Oh, I know. It's tragic. But, you know, Akuna Matata, right? Yeah. This is what keeps us together. Yeah. And our very long-term friendship, but also the podcast. And we're learning. We're growing. It's all good. All good. Including good sneakers. 1992. The fans have been clamoring for sneakers. I feel like you say that, and then you probably got like two text messages about, hey, I heard you mentioned uh, sneakers before. That Are you going to do that? I think that that's exactly right. I got <laughs> one but, text message, one LinkedIn message. Yeah. I think hey, are you guys going to do sneakers? I think we did talk about it on the last episode as well, that we're going to do sneakers. I think you did mention it. and But you know what? I think that two out of our... You know, two divided by yeah, the actual size listeners. of our listening audience, that <laughs> would technically percentage. be clamoring. So it is not overstating anything. Yeah, it's a huge percentage. That is um, a huge what's your, Have you seen this movie before? What's oh, your, what's yes, your I have. Okay. This what, movie I have seen a couple times. A couple times. Okay. And and did you so in my head, like I watched this movie when I you know, when it came out probably, but I did not necessarily equate it with a hacker movie originally and then I love the movie. I, I've definitely seen the movie quite a bit, but what, what was your background with this movie? I also totally love this movie. I do not think that I saw it when it came out. I don't think I saw this until I was um, older and probably like working in the security industry. But um, how did you classify, like how did you classify these guys just kind of as like professional I, con men, like in I your mean, mind when you saw it the first time? I don't think when I saw it, I even understood it would only be like years like even like today when i watch it i'm like okay well if war games is the og hacker movie Mm -hmm. this is like the og red teaming movie that's that's like my thought process of like okay well they're actually like they'll do anything in order to you know penetrate the target a lot of physical stuff Mm -hmm. you know so so that's kind of which was never necessarily a focus for me i mean i i kind of you know, I can I can certainly see the parallels and stuff, but that's that was in my head of like, this is the this is the OG red teaming movie versus the OG hacker team. By the way, we should say it's written by the same people. Walter Parks, Lawrence Lasker is the team that really wrote War Games. They conceived of this movie while they were researching that, and this kind of pivoted into a movie later on. Did you know that? I did not know that. And you yeah. know what? I I'm should, I need to chastise myself because I was like, Kev is really prepared for these movie things. He knows all these 
fun facts out, you know, about the making of the movie and stuff. I feel like you've really been flexing on that. And I was going to try to meet you and do my research on that. And I totally, <laughs> I, I actually learned about that when I was researching, when we did war games that, I, that these guys, the same team parks and Lasker wrote hmm. both movies. So, um, what let's break, let's, uh, I guess dive into it. Cause you know, you know how we do this. It takes a while. <laughs> we scene by scene, we do the breakdowns <laughs> and this, is this the longest out of all the movies too? This uh, one is over two hours. I, I don't know if it might not be the longest, but there's a lot of meat here. So we gotta, we gotta dive in and get to the breakdown. Um, and then kind of, you know, we'll, we'll spend some time where we need some time, but this is, this is such a good one. Yeah. Let's, let's not, let's not, uh, slow it down with our, our usual, you know, silly banter up front. Let's get into the, let's, let's get into it. the weeds, Dennis. Universal planet spinning. It's earth. Universal pictures. I love these old logos. What about you? Oh, uh, same. I love like, yeah. you know, the MGM lion roaring. It just totally puts me in the mood to like watch a movie. We get some smooth jazz up front and <laughs> This like basically becomes an aesthetic for the movie is this like word jumbling text, which actually reminds me in that in the hackers commentary, we talked about like how some text was scrolling up, some was scrolling down, <laughs> you know, who knows what's going on, <laughs> a bunch of amograms like that kind of is also here like this, you know, jumbling words thing is is a huge part of the, the visual that aesthetic of the movie. Yes. And foreshadowing, too. Um, so here, here it opens up with, with these anagrams and also like, I kind of have a soft spot for my, for these anagrams in terms of like trying to come up with a mnemonic, you know, for, <laughs> you know, our software security maturity action planning stuff. It's a lot of like, okay, well, how could I jumble these words up? So this, this, uh, these anagrams definitely, uh, felt, uh, reminiscent of me but first day first thing on the screen a turnip cures elvis do you know what that is universal pictures yep Uh uh-huh okay a few astral clerks slash repel newark oh i don't i can't i don't remember what this one is that's lawrence lasker and walter parks who are the writers who who also wrote Mm. war games okay blonde rhino spaniel I don't that remember is, this one either. That is the director, Phil Robinson. Okay. In Fort Red Border. We're not oh, this be, one you, I know. In this okay. one I know. Robert Crush Redford. This, yeah, Robert yeah. Redford. Uh, so, yeah, these, these anagrams pop up. Okay, and then it's December 1969. I, when I was watching this in the past, I was like, what is this, this place? Is this a mansion? you know, is this a frat house? I did not understand what it is. Do you, do you know what this building is? This first thing? Yeah. What what was your thoughts? uh, My takeaway is that it was a frat house because it had like the Greek letters over it It, when he leaves to go get pizza or whatever. I, I, that's what I thought. I think that it's a, it's a, you know, private university computer lab is how I'd position it because here's the deal. Uh, we get into basically hack number one is the first scene, right? We get green screen federal reserve banking network. And for the year being 1969, these guys 
are basically on a, and I've done some research here for the first scene because to me, it feels like this is super early to be modeming into anything, right? Like Mm -hmm. 1969. Like, so, okay. The movie is mostly set in 1992. This is a flashback opening scene for 1969. So I did some research, right? So, the data point 3300 produced by the computer terminal Cor- corporation was the first basically dumb terminal that we would have had available at the time. Right. And it looks pretty similar. The computer, the, the, the keyboard that they have in the movie has white keys or, or has some black keys that uh, the ones that I could see only had white keys, but essentially you know, if the Federal Reserve have a modem line, the thing that you would be able to use from whatever is the data point 3300 with a Bell 103A, probably 3300 baud modem. And my guess is that these guys are in a university computer lab would be if I, you know, going back and like making sense of the movie, that's that's what I would figure out or that's what I, I would assume. Because it doesn't seem like Cosmo or so that, you know, we've got Martin uh, or Marty and Cosmo in this first scene. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Marty is kind of shoulder surfing and Cosmo is the guy driving. And basically these guys are at a terminal and it's, you know, a bunch of, of text, but basically they're putting in source routing numbers, destination routing numbers, and moving some money around. And they're the first thing they're doing is moving 25 grand from the Republican Party to the Black Panthers. And the, the next thing they're doing is they're emptying Richard Nixon's personal checking and moving it to, I think it's the National Association to Legalize Marijuana, right? So um, that that's their hack. And... Uh- also, yeah, real quick, in my first uh-huh. kudos to this film for you know being very realistic, I feel like for the F- this FRB network terminal interface, the authenticator ID mm-hmm. not shown in plain text. Yeah, yeah, you know that that I is think true. All of the passwords in the previous password slash usernames uh, in the previous two movies that we reviewed, all right there on the screen. Uh, I think the props department got a long way with like a word processor in this movie. <laughs> like mm-hmm. many of the me- the menus and co- all the computer stuff we see, which is there's a bunch of of dynamic breaking into different situation stuff that's not computer based, but the computer stuff they keep pretty simple throughout, and a lot of it seems to be just you know different word processors and, and stuff like that. I like that though. That worked yeah. for me. Okay. I think it, I think it works really good. And the tape library. So they, they, you know, they scroll, they, they do a glamor shot of the computers in the scene and stuff like that. And they scroll over a tape library. And to me, to based on my research, that looks to be, I think the props department did great in this movie. We'll talk about it a little bit later of like all the, the great tech stuff um, and gear that they have. But it seems like they've kind of mocked up like an audio reel to reel to try to look similar to a magnetic tape library of the time. So storage technology corporation was building some stuff and here's my plug. Uh, you want to see old computers. If you're ever in the Bay area, take a, you got to get, take at least a day and go to the computer history museum in mountain view. Have you ever been there? I have not. 
Oh, it's so cool. But they have all this stuff, you know, pretty much archived on display and it's, it's real reminiscent. So this tape library, I, I think is kind of some reel to reels mocked up with some of those great Apollo 11 buttons we were talking about, <laughs> you know, and, and other stuff, but I love it. Um, but uh, then, so we get into the, the first dialogue we get is this like, it reminds me of another, I think 1992 movie of like the, the speed pop quiz hotshot and Marty and Cosmo do this like posit thing, right? Posit. Ah, uh, yes. Consequence. Okay, I'm, I'm Cosmos. I'm Cosmo. Pause it. The phone company has too much money. And you're Marty. And you say. <laughs> yeah, you have something you know, like consequence. They're evil. Or something. Yeah, no, it's like they're corrupt. <laughs> Results. And they, they go through these things. And it, they're not even that consistent in how they do it. So, um, But, the you know, they're, they're basically, you know, civil rights warriors who are on the forefront of these digital frontier right like well this is like i think the first movie hacktivists right they're moving money around on the federal reserve bank um using this uh what what i would expect is a data point 3300 terminal uh bell 103 modem and they get hungry so they're they're kind of doing the hey are you who's gonna go get the pizza thing and they do the, I do this with my nieces, this like two hand game, mm-hmm. which I guess everybody does with somebody where you hold out two hands and you got to pick a hand and Cosmo and, you know, so Marty picks one of Cosmo's hands and it's empty. And then we later on reveal that Cosmo is just kind of like a, a sleight of hand artist and both hands are empty. So Marty's got to go head out for pizza in a VW minibus. Love the cars in this movie. So both of these Lasker Parks projects, you know, I mentioned that I love the, I, I love, so Marty's in a VW minibus, I think, and uh, it's not starting up real good. He looks in his rear view sees some police lights. The cops have closed in, right? Mm. And they've traced them back and very reminiscent of hackers. We see some shotguns pointed at people's faces. <laughs> they're, they're storming the, the computer lab. And Marty, uh, as he gets captured, is like kicking out the Cosmos. The, the, or, I'm sorry, yeah, a Cosmo as he gets captured is is kicking out the window, and Marty is like, ah, "I'm out of here." He jets, he runs off. Great, yes, good opening scene. And it's so, snowing, and he's out there in the streetlight, uh, and Cosmo sees him as he's getting pulled away from the window. Sees him. Not where do you think him. they're at? That it's snowing. Because it's not going to snow in the Bay Area, right? No, I for some reason in my head, I feel like they're in Boston. I don't know Boston? why. I just that's why. Well, I, that, that, that's I think where we I have think some. You know. We definitely have some mystery to explore about what Ben Kingsley accent is later. Because <laughs> I'm very confused <laughs> on the Ben. I also am. Okay, I, I feel like there is some accent drift in this movie. For gotcha. This yeah, yeah. It's very curious to me. Uh, so fade to static. They're in another cool van. With a bunch of gear. I don't know how big this van is. Oh my but God. But yes. I would love it. And also, if you drove this van more than four feet, can you imagine the stuff falling off of these shelves? <laughs> this van is packed to the gills, right? And we see a Robert Redford who is, do you know how old? Do you have a guess how old Robert Redford is in this movie? Did you look it up? Like his real age or the age that his yeah. character is supposed to be? I don't, yeah. I, I mean, they don't talk about how old the character is supposed to be. I guess. You know, you could you could assume that if they're in college in 1969, 
you know, that would, that would kind of equate to maybe a 48, 49, like born in 1948 or 49 movie. No, see, like, I feel or, like, yeah, that he, I was going to say Robert Redford character age in the movie, somewhere between 43 and 45, but that was the, the from how he looks in the movie. That's a, that, that's a really rough I, 43, 45. He's 56 when it was, you know, in terms of when it was released, right? Okay. So I think you're right. I think he's 56 playing 46 would be my guess. Yeah, I'm, I totally agree. And so we fade to, to, to static. We come in there in this great new van, bunch of gear. And there's just this like Robert Redford is a, half asleep or asleep. And there's this red light and he's woken up by Sidney Portier, who plays Crease in this movie. Who is, I mean, just amazing throughout the movie, oh, yeah. uh, as as you would expect, right? Like, I mean, well, this I think guy like is, just everyone in this movie from top to bottom is amazing. Yeah, I, it, it's yeah, except for maybe Ben Kingsley, who you know on paper might be one of the best <laughs> movies, but we'll we'll get to it. So so uh, Crease uh, tells uh, and and Robert Redford's character name is uh, Martin Bishop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and increases its time. And uh, we then cut to uh, River Phoenix out on the fire escape. And uh, th- I mean, all these characters are great, right? So River Phoenix plays Carl, right? And we'll, we'll cover the breakdown uh, a little bit later, but there's, so Carl's like a young uh, red teamer and Crease is playing a former CIA um, but they're, they're all kind of working together here. And then we, we, uh, get a, get a shot of Dan Aykroyd playing mother mm-hmm. who is in a, what they call a cable vault, which is what I would call like an IDF or a MDF. You know, he's in a, a copper, um, junction plant type of thing. So like, a maybe a, a telco pedestal or something. And the next great thing is we get introduced to Whistler who is uh, Whistler's reading and it's somebody it's reading Braille is our first introduction and it's a Braille playboy. So obviously for the articles, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which I, I liked. Uh, I like so, wi- too. so we get Whistler. So Whistler is working with Dan Aykroyd. So Dan Aykroyd is in the cable plant and Dan Aykroyd has an inductive amplifier. That's part of a, tone and probe kit are you familiar with the what, what that is i am not so if you've got a bunch of copper and you need to figure out like say you don't know what copper is plumbed into which place you know twisted pair right mm-hmm. we would go in in on one side we would insert a tone generator so we would plug in basically a device onto a pair of copper that's generating a specific uh uh, a tone onto the copper pair and the inductive amplifier, right? So it's using basically it's uh it's, it's using magnetic induction and then putting it into a speaker to amplify it. That would generate a, that corresponding tone. And you know, okay, well my tone generator is plugged in here and I'm seeing this, but they're not using that tone generator. Whistler, the blind person who is throughout the movie, just like this really tuned into the sense of hearing 
is actually just listening, using that inductive amplifier to listen to the different signals from these copper as they roll through. So uh, mother Dan Aykroyd is, is kind of going through one by one and saying, you know, what does this sound like? What does this sound like? And Whistler is trying to identify what is this kind of alarm trunk circuit mm. by sound, right? So uh, meanwhile, <laughs> while they're doing this, mother by, you know, play, Dan Aykroyd mother is spouting conspiracy theory to Crease, who this is like an ongoing bit. Uh, <laughs> so at this point, mother is like blaming the Managua earthquake on the CIA. <laughs> And, um, but like throughout the whole thing, Chris is like not hearing anything is like hates this, this thing of like all the conspiracy theories. Um, it's great. Right. I love it too. I, and I'm going to wait because they touch on my favorite conspiracy theory of all time later in. The oh, day. well, if we don't, if we don't hit it, you gotta, you gotta chime in. Uh, m- meanwhile, Marty's peeping on the security guard through some, some binos you know, crease is, is there's gotta be, here's one, one thing I have. It's like, there's eight TVs minimum in this van. (laughs) (laughs) The number of TVs in this van is intense. Um, crease is super annoyed. Whistler finally hears what he, you know, what he wants to hear. He's like, I don't know if he says bingo or whatever, but he's found the, he's ID'd by noise. What Dan Aykroyd later refers to as the master alarm circuit. Right. So mother Dan Aykroyd then says he's attaching the bridge clips and what, what did you kind of make of this bridge clips thing? What do you think he's doing? Uh, bypassing, like basically going to route it someplace else. Yeah. I think he, I think it's twofold. I think he's, you know, doing some type of loop back or something like that back to the alarm panel in the, in the, we will see shortly it's a bank he's he's mm. looping back the signal to the bank and he's also looping back the signal to the alarm monitoring companies that that was my kind of take okay um in terms of how it would work right so that both people so he's essentially severed the link between the um you know the on-premise alarm circuit master alarm circuit he's he's uh severed that link to the bank and then we um basically get you know cut to the security guard we just see a a quick blip and that's that's kind of you know associated that's how i i kind of piece this together there's a quick blip on the mezzanine control panel you know where it flips from you know uh you know it, it just kind of blips from status okay to red then quick back to blip so i think that that's some type of loop back bridging type of thing um Marty and Kreese then kind of run out of the van. They head across the street and we see Centurion Bank. And so we, at this point, we think they're basically robbing this bank, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen this movie a bunch of times, but I I would assume the first time you see this, you would assume, and especially because we see River Phoenix looks like a very classic cat burglar. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Uh, and he's also, here's, here's a great bit. River Phoenix is like rubbing shoe polish on his face and Cindy Bordier playing Crease and Marty like hop up and Crease gives him a real dirty look because it's basically, Crease is like, why are you wearing blackface? Yes. <laughs> like that, that was my impression. And, and kind of Marty does that, that double take too. So, um, we got to a close up of Carl's watch, which I, uh, figured out because it's, 
He's the only person wearing gloves <laughs> and it's closing in on 1am and Marty makes the remark that says, you can't even believe how hard it is to get a safe deposit box. Then we see a clip. We're in the safe deposit vault and smoke is coming out of one of the boxes sets off the fire alarm. Oh, well, I, you know, I was just thinking like, okay, this is going to be the distraction. They're going to be able to, uh, burst, you know, all hell is going to break loose with the diversion from the smoke. You ever, right? the, you ever use a safe deposit box? I have not. I personally do not have a safe deposit box. I feel like I went with my folks one time with my mom. She was running an errand, and I feel like she had my. I think my folks have a safe deposit box. What do they put in it? I have no idea. Maybe like the deed of the house, something like that. (laughs) I I would like you for it. Can you get a manifest of your parents' safe deposit? (laughs) I will have that for the next movie review. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Yeah, it's it's great. So he inserted some type of you know time time bomb smoke device, set off the alarm. Guard is sitting at the lobby desk. He's so so basically that smoke bomb sets off the fire detector, and the guard. Did you see how surprised this guard is that he just like knocks a TV off of the Yeah, well, that, that's, yeah, by the way, like that was so awkward too. He's got a TV propped up on the top of his counter and he is also sitting on top of the counter. He's getting real comfortable. Yeah. Too comfortable for a security I, guy. I mean, my is liking. it comfortable? It looks uncomfortable. Well, but I, mean, I am impressed. Very, yeah. I'm definitely impressed how well that TV bounces and all the <laughs> same. same. <laughs> like, so what, what are they making these '80s TVs out of? Or '90s Nerf, TVs? Nerf. So he out. then he then grabs the the manual, which it feels pretty pretty real to me. I'm definitely like in a situation <laughs> where something has gone way wrong. Be like, hmm, where's that manual? Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, you know, Marty, Crease, and Carl are basically bolting through the lobby, right? And mm-hmm. the guard uh, calls into the alarm. And if you're real astute, you'll put it together that the voice that answers the alarm is Whistler, mm-hmm. right? So he's answering on behalf of the alarm company. Ba- using this bridge-clipped feedback mechanism that Mother Planet. Yes. So at this point, uh, you know, Whistler is is kind of social engineering the guard. He's like, well, if there's no smoke, no flames, why don't you chill a bit? And, you know, we've been getting these all night and just see how it goes. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and at the same time, <laughs> great gag, River Phoenix, Carl, has opened up a control panel and Marty's asking him if he knows which one to cut. And Carl very confidently says, alarm panels are always the green one. He cuts, he does a little snip and the lights turn off. (laughs) Now, movie bug or pet peeve of mine in general, I get it. But this whole, anytime you're dealing with a bomb or whatever, and they're talking about the colors of the wires. It's like, well, somebody could have used whatever color wires they wanted. You yeah. know, <laughs> I mean, I guess the best is in speed because they actually like kind of cut back the sheath of the wire in speed once. No, we're not doing speed. It's not a hacking movie. But they're like, oh, that's a you know aluminum coated thing. Maybe they they'd use something a little bit nicer than copper or whatever. So that's to me is a little bit more real. But this whole like color thing in movies, I think is bunk. Why would if you're building a bomb, 
would you ever use just you know the the industry standard yes of course <laughs> building bombs is exactly like painting by numbers okay okay yes. all right <laughs> so you've clearly never is... read the anarchist cookbook <laughs> oh you haven't <laughs> what about the big book of mischief have you no i just oh, i've not read either uh we'll have to do a book review on the big book of mischief but we Ooh. cut to the guard and he's had it right like he's worried He's going to call the fire department, but all of a sudden now the alarm stops. And Whistler's like, you know what? You did a good job. Like he's he's reassuring the guard. He say, I think he says, son, good work. Right. Mm-hmm. Which for people that don't have a strong father figure in their life, that's really gonna matter, you know? Yeah, well, also, you know, he's sort of stroking the guy's ego, not wanting him to question what's going on. I thought it was a very nice touch there from the social engineer. Absolutely. I think much better than the hackers, you know, hey, I'm going to commit Harry, you know, where they drop like a 40 things that would never like (laughs) that actually makes a little sense to me. Give them some confidence in this thing. It's called a con man because he gives the, the target confidence. Did you know that? Oh, it's for that? Okay, I thought it was because they exude so much confidence. Yeah, like a con artist. Well, it's about giving the target confidence so that they abide, I think, right? I don't I mean, uh, yeah, probably. I don't know. I mean, mine is just that you act confidently, right? Like as again, like mm-hmm. as we will see in a later social engineering hack that Robert Redford does to gain access to a building. He's a v- gotcha. extremely confident. But so way. at this point, they've sprinted across the lobby and we cut to a very 1990s, what I would look like, like looks to me to be like a Novell network interface. So the application is Centurion Savings Alone. It's an ASCII menu. A lot of basically one through six menus typed mm-hmm. up in Microsoft Word. And this one looked kind of, kind of Novell, but this is the first one. So at this point... There's like almost no authentication in this movie at all. Even like we kind of we'll talk about it later, but it's you you they basically have access. They move a crease. Oh, and also now crease is driving the computer. So out of the two computer scenes so far, both Marty's just kind of shoulder surfing. So my theory, maybe a little subtle in this movie, I don't think Marty can type. What do you think? Oh, I, well. I think that you are correct because I've got a note about the, my next note. Is it specifically about something related to that? So I think that Marty is just the confidence man. That's it. That's his role. He's like the mastermind guy. He is definitely not he, the techie dude. He also takes on a lot of the risk in the different penetrations. Like later on, I mean, I guess there's a reason he's doing it, right? But I think, I think overall, yeah, he's the person – He's kind of the instrument, right? That um, he he maybe not he maybe is is not a specialist of particular skills, but risk reward or whatever he he does a lot of the hands on work. Mm-hmm. So Crease is is kind of driving. This kind of mirrors the first scene with Cosmo a little bit. And Crease asks, asks Marty how much he wants. Next day, same bank, daytime. The bank's in operation. We see a, a teller 
stacking Benjamins, right? Into a briefcase. They're counting out, you know, 99,500. It doesn't look like that much money to me, actually. But now, did you fire up the uh, the cost of living adjustment between <laughs> 1992 and now for $100,000? Uh, I did not, but... I have my hacker's note here, and so this was uh in this was in 1992. Uh huh. This will movies take place in the same year. So no, my note here no. says that yes, right? Well, hackers, yes. hackers. The last cost of living adjustment you gave us was from 1987 when Dade Murphy got. Caught. Oh, you're totally right. That was right. 1988. So okay. Okay. So, so at that time, 45k was worth 102k today. So this is roughly twice that, right? So probably we're probably like, like a quarter mil, I think. Yeah, two twenty, two maybe a quarter mil. Yeah. The teller is like, "Why are you closing your account?" And he gives this cute line. He just got a weird feeling his money isn't safe. He takes the briefcase that has this hundred thousand dollars in it that he's just withdrawn and closed from accounts, and he doesn't walk out of the building. He walks past the security guard. They make a little eye contact. There's a little bit of a a quirk there. I guess we're still kind of in this moment that we should be thinking that they're robbing this bank. But yeah. instead of walking out of the bank, he walks upstairs right into a conference room, starts the debrief. Have you this, this to me, this is like, this is Dennis one one You're in that debrief room and you're like, Hey, here are the four things. Your communicate, your communication lines are vulnerable. Your fire exits aren't monitored. Your, your rent-a-cop are a tad undertrained, and besides that, everything seems to be in order as he's stacking the money on the table. Now, you've done that, right? This is classic. <laughs> I wish. I, all I could think of was like, this is the most baller thing in the world. I love that he just like, we don't even know if these are the people that hired him. These could be have people at the bank that have no idea that this test is even going under underway, and he's just interrupting a board meeting with no context. I, I just loved everything about this. I, no, this is his scheduled time, right? I mean, this is his pen test readout no i I, I didn't okay you think so i did not oh, yeah I, he, I'm definitely that's what the i impression. Think. they're like sorting through papers he's definitely interrupting something here oh no i th- i thought that it's like oh man okay we'll do our readout at 11 and he just walks right up with the cash no way no. that was I, my feeling and i thought no. it was cool and and at this point he this is also how you invoice people as as far as i know right like you just throw their money back at them and say, Hey, <laughs> you'll get your report in a few days. Where, where can I get my check? That's how you do it. Right. That is, that's one Oh one. How I invoice customers. Yes. So, but yeah, this was just the ultimate big time readout I had ever, uh, I'd ever seen. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, cut to new teller now. And she is doing a lot of like, work for the movie. She says, okay, so you break into banks so that other people can't break. So the real bad guys can't break it or whatever. She's, she's kind of laying the the pipe for the movie. And Marty says it's a living. She says not a very good one. Did you catch how much the money the check is for here? Uh, no, I did not. It seems to be for 2250. So, it does seem, and, and she says, not a very good one, right? So she's saying, oh, it's a little bit light. It 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 does seem to be a little bit on the soft side. I'm, I don't want to get into uh, 
<laughs> to gross margin, gross profit <laughs> for your average red teaming engagement. But, you know, it, mostly because of how many people are involved, right? Like you, you have oh, yeah. essentially all, is it four or five people? You got Mother, Crease, Carl, and... Whistler, Robert Redford. Whistler and, and Bish. So there's five people involved, 22 feet. Yeah, that's a little light. And... Um, in terms of the, you know, 2250 for all, all five of those people. So Marty leaves the bank and then all of a sudden he's under surveillance. And the only glimpse we get is that it's, it's a mustache guy. Ah, I love it. And, uh, so this is the first time we see business Dennis. (laughs) Quarantine Dennis. Quarantine uh, Dennis. Is that how you would call it? That's what I would call it. Yeah. So back to the clubhouse. Right, which is rad. This this San Francisco loft office they have. No wonder they can't make any money. How much do you think that this <laughs> office would actually cost in San Francisco? It is awesome. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, like, there's no way they they could afford this, right? Even at the time, not a twenty-two fifty. Five people. I mean, unless they're doing one of these a night. Yeah. I mean, even then, I mean this 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 office today. The size of it. I mean, this is a at least a fifty thousand dollar a month office rental in at least minimum minimum. So, so they're doing more work about oh, you know, we're broke. The typist hasn't been paid since January, so mother's got to type up the report for the bank. Ah, uh, I would like to pause here. Uh-huh. To your yeah. Yeah. This was the one note, because that's my next note. It like, took me out of the movie, and I was like, yep, security company that like that is hiring and paying another person to type their reports. I, sounds, sounds lavish. Sounds la- I know they have a lavish... Uh, office i i don't think that they're that lavish that they're hiring someone else to write their reports for them it doesn't ring true to me either and also i i've never seen a a technical writer come in and actually write up a good report either so um yeah so <laughs> carl riverfeeding comes up to bishop and says there's customers right or clients i don't know what he says but and then marty asks what, what about shoes? their shoes and carl says expensive See, always wear nice shoes, Kev. Always do that. I wear flip flops. Nope. See, not gonna, not gonna. Is work. that why I'm not landing deals like you? That's why, Rob. That's why Robert Redford doesn't take your meetings. Okay. Ah, I wish, I wish you would. <laughs> Marty meets him in the la- the the lobby, and now we see business Dennis and all of his glory. Who I remember. So the 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 redheaded. Good oh my god! Cop, just. Okay. Go ahead. I I want to see if we have the same note here. Poindexter something. Re- Poindexter this, from Revenge of the Nerds? Oh no. I, uh, I know this guy from a an eighties sitcom called Thirty Something. Oh my god. This guy I don't even fr- know if it was a sitcom, it was like an eighties drama almost, like almost a soap opera. So that's did that have it, Robert Downey Jr. in it? I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean it, it's just Oh wait, hold on. Yeah, no, I'm thinking something know. else. Anyway, this guy will forever be Poindexter to me from Revenge of the Nerds. That's no, I've like, seen Nerds. I don't remember this guy being in it, but yeah, he has like a very curly red hair. I mean, he, he has we, red hair in this movie. He was basically, you know, like how it was uh, Anthony Edwards, the dude from uh-huh. ER. Yeah, no, okay. Uh-huh. And then mm-hmm. there was. Um, I mean, I call him Goose. 
from oh, Top Gun. Okay. Top Gun two is the out main. Then there's the na- Top Gun two episode. <laughs> <laughs> then Lewis, right, the main nerd with the laugh. Uh-huh, yep. And then he was like, Poindexter was like the third popular oh. nerd in that movie. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway. So these guys in the lobby. There's a a young Dennis. And an older guy who they call Wallace, so I'll call bad cop for most of this, I think. Mm. But, you know, good cop, bad cop. They've heard a lot of good things. And uh, they move to a conference room. And, you know, uh, Dennis says, hey, before we get started, I'd like to clear up some some things. You know, most firms of your type are staffed with ex-law enforcement. But your team is uh and then Marty cuts in and says kind of different and then we get the backstory on all these guys right which is great this storytelling is just phenomenal oh it is no? great i mean i actually like i think that that's why i had to, so few notes for this for our in prep it does for such, the yeah, cuz it was so it engrossing yeah yeah so so we've got mother who's Dan Aykroyd's character he did 18 months for B&E and Marty says he was framed We've got Carl, who was caught break. Who is River Phoenix? Yeah. was caught breaking into school system computer to change his grade. And Marty says they're the ones that caught him, right? So yeah. So I like, what that. elementary school is hiring? Like, this is again just saying like the how how much is an elementary school or whatever a high school going to pay you to? <laughs> team them? Well, they don't have to pay much, right? Like, uh, I guess not. Twenty two fifty. Um, we got Whistler who has 62 counts against him for phone freaking basically, Mm. right? He's the phantom freak of this movie, which is great. (laughs) Uh, and then Marty cuts in and say, well, what about crease, right? You want law enforcement? Crease has 22 years in the CIA and the old guy Wallace or bad cop says he, what was he fired for? Right. And Marty says he thinks a personality conflict, but he has no clue. Right. Um, Dennis says, uh, you know, or the old guy continues, he opens, and, and here's the thing. It's like the old guy's like, and then there's Martin Bishop, and he opens this folder, and the folder has like a paperclip on it. It's like, how long did this guy, anyway, he opens the folder, and he's like, we don't have anything. You don't seem to exist, right? <laughs> Do you, the night before this meeting, are you like looking to like, are you throwing away papers out of a folder to get this empty folder? <laughs> Where- I don't know. I just love that he prepped this whole bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's got a paper clip on it. Like what was in that folder that he cleared out for this? I don't know. But I love gag. this guy's attention to detail. <laughs> this guy's great. Uh, he opens up this folder. Uh, and Marty's at this point, very nervous. And he's like, I don't do government work. Young guy flashes a badge, says they're NSA. Marty says, you're the ones I hear breathing on the phone. Uh, Young guy slash Dennis says, NSA isn't charted for domestic surveillance. That's an interesting topic that we, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not a political podcast, but certainly this is something that's been uh, in our lifetime since this movie drastically changed, right? Yes. The, The role of the NSA. Um, Marty says, oh, you're the guys who overthrow governments. The young guy says, no, that's the CIA. The NSA's job is to protect communications, try to break the other guys' codes. They're the good guys. And the old guy basically drags young Dennis out of the room. (laughs) Uh, Before he leaves, he says, hey, if you change your your mind, uh, 
give us a call. He hands him a piece of paper and then he says, Mr. Bryce, right? So this guy knows. So Robert Redford plays Martin Bishop, who is also originally named Martin Bryce. He's been on the run because of this 1969 computer thing. Yes. So they cut to Marty pulling out into a parking spot near an old post office, walks across the street to a federal. So basically Marty right away is like, now he's going out to these people to see what they want. So immediately next scene, basically, okay, they scared me. Let me go find out what they want. And Dennis is basically writing a sow from Marty, right? Yeah. He's, he's outlining the mission at hand. Yep. We need, why don't, why don't we do this as a game? Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Marty and, and you're Dennis. Okay. Uh, so, so what do you want from me, Dennis? Uh, there is a mathematician that is working on some special box. What does the box do? It does a cryptography stuff. You mean like large number theory, prime numbers, factoring? Factorization, kind of yes. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Why, why do you want this box? Uh, we need this box so that uh, we can break Russian codes. <laughs> uh, a little bit. <laughs> I, so basically they claim that this mathematician Janik got a $300,000 grant, grant to mm. work on this stuff and that the NSA traced it to Russia as the origin. Um, Marty kind of comes back and is like, guys, I mean, the wall fell 15 minutes ago. Like, do you, do you get a sense of like this? I don't know. Is this what the world was like? Like right after this cold war, it's like, Oh, we won. It's over. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to remember being a 10 year old at the time, but Marty's very over the cold war already. Like doesn't even think it's realistic, you know, like, Oh, totally. I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't like, I tell you, growing up in the nineties, it was like the only reason I thought that we had to fear Russia is just like watching any movie that was set in the 1950s about like them doing drills well, about yeah, Russia 50, dropping 60, nukes so. on us. So I was like almost no. wasn't even the Cold War stuff that I was picking up on as a kid. It was like even the nostalgia from 30 years prior, like stuff mm. in anyway, any, any, any movie that I watched as a kid that took that was set in the 1950s. That's where any uh, fear of Russia came from. So young redheaded Dennis is, it says, you know, okay, basically they, they, they made this block, this box. Um, it's under the kind of a project called SeaTech astronomy. It, it, uh, you know, it does something. We're not exactly sure, but they need the box. They want to know, or they want, basically want Bishop to steal this piece of hardware. And Marty asked, well, why don't you do it yourself? Dennis is like, Hey, we're the NSA. We're not allowed to operate on, on, you know, domestic soil. Marty asks, why don't you get the FBI? The old guy kind of shrugs and says, well, (laughs) it kind of implies the FBI sucks. (laughs) And the young guy is just like, well, it's illegal for us to hire the FBI too. Or no, no, no. It was like a, it takes a Congress or something like that. Yeah. It takes, it requires an act of Congress. And then, you know, and Marty asks, well, why me? And they're like, well, because it's illegal. And you're you have done illegal stuff. You evaded capture for twenty years. 
although it seems to be pretty well known by a lot of people that Marty is in fact this Martin Price. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> surprised how often people are just like, oh yeah, Martin Bishop is Martin Price. Like throughout the movie. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be a huge secret. Um and the job pays 175 grand. So if we're doing the throwback math cost of living now in 175 grand in 1992, maybe like 300 grand, something like that. Mm. No, I think it's more than that. 175 grand. Uh huh. No, it's got to be more than that because a hundred grand back in the because we just said a hundred grand back in the day. So it's more like it's probably in more in the range of half a million. Because we just said that a hundred grand was a quarter. I think this is important, so we're gonna do we're gonna do the cost of living calculator. Oh my god! No, it's not cost of living; it's inflation adjustment. But uh, yeah, so it's definitely more than three hundred. I, 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 okay, I, so one hundred seventy-five thousand, and let's say January nineteen ninety-two. In June 21, $344,000. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, Dennis. Sorry. Our, uh, TVMA. <laughs> Explicit. Podcast. Okay. Uh, so Marty's like, okay, hard pass. I'm not in it for the money. They sweeten the deal, say they're going to clean up his record. Right? Yeah. Right? They also say, hey, you know what happened to Cosmo? He got 12 years without evading. And they kind of imply something happened to him in prison. Essentially, they imply that he died in prison, I guess. And Marty asks, what if he says no? And they say, basically, they'll throw him in prison. So Marty's got to come clean to his crew. Have you ever done this with your your pen test team? <laughs> you <ever had> to <laughs> reveal that I am actually a yeah, completely different you're, person? Yeah, uh, you're, hey, guys, I actually was on 30-something in the 80s. <laughs> Got a lot of felony counts. So Marty comes clean. The crease is mad and that says that, hey, we should be open with each other. We're partners. And then Marty throws it back at him and says, hey, why did you get fired from the CIA? And he doesn't want to talk about it. So Marty then is kind of, you know, hey, we've all got secrets and gives him a choice and uh, says, you know, hey, they can opt out, right? This isn't a test. The penetration is live. The target is unaware level of security is probably low. And Marty says, if they don't want to take the job to keep him out of jail, he gets it. And uh, Whistler then comes in and says, Hey, Marty, I'm in, but not because I care about you going to jail. I'm just in it for the money (laughs) as a kind of a joke. I think, right. I think so too. I had also made a note here. They're like, was this 175 K total for this job or per person? Total. Yeah. But because they're like treating this as if this is like retirement money, I felt like. Well, I mean, they're all getting. I mean, if you, I mean, based on the, say this was today, and say they're splitting it evenly, which you know, I mean, Marty's aptitude for fairness, I would say that hey, we're all in it on his team. They're they're all getting seventy five grand ish. Okay, so it's not it's not fu money. Um, no, but, it's not. But isn't there, he like explained that this job, there might be like the risk of death in this job. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. oh yeah, okay, yeah. great. So, so Carl's like in and Mother's like, hey, what about that killing us part? And Whistler says, hey, it's 175K. 
And so they're, they're all in. And then crease kind of chimes in and says, well, you guys are going to end up being chalk lines if I don't, if I'm not involved. So he kind of steps in as the white knight there. Yeah. So now somewhere in between here, by the way, uh, I feel like Mother makes reference to, I think maybe at the start of this meeting, he makes reference to the fake moon landing. I think that that's in the first van scene. I mean, no, I I don't think it's in that. It's not in that one because I have it in between Marty meeting with redheaded Dennis and then Uh them talking about like, what the heck did we do? Because doesn't Mother talk about his Winnebago in this scene? Uh, mother wants a Winnebago, but that's later on that he, t- he mentions it. So, and I guess, you know, we, we nailed, okay. Dennis is the, at this point, the swarmy young redheaded FBI or NSA agent. And if you take out the conspiracy theory part, I'd have to say that Kevin is basically mother. <laughs> like, I would totally agree. If I were going to put myself in this movie, I would say that, yeah, I probably, I'm probably mother if I was going to ID that. So um, at this point, we set up some light surveillance on the mathematician, and there's a lecture tomorrow, and Kreese asks, you know, Marty, hey, do you want me or Whistler to go? And Marty says he's going to ask Liz. So cut to a fancy school and Liz played by Mary McDonald is at a piano and we think she's playing this beautiful concerto or whatever. I'm not, I'm not a music guy, but as we move in closer and this, I love this, this reveal, it's not Liz playing the piano. It's this like tiny, small, uh, uh, virtuoso girl who's playing and, and Liz says, and, and the girl stops and asks you that is, and Liz says, well, it's sort of an old friend. Uh, <laughs> girl runs off. Liz is saying, Liz immediately opens up. We're not getting back together. <laughs> so, and she kind of points out, Hey, I'm done with the clubhouse. I'm not going to get drugged back into your, you know, your, your, your BS. And Marty kind of pushes a little bit and and gets to explain to her that or explains to her that he needs her to explain the math to him. And she's done. She's walking away. And now we we find out that Liz knows about Marty's past. Liz is one of roughly 200 people that knows that, <laughs> that Marty Bishop is in fact Marty Price. She's one of every other person that Martin Bishop. Has yeah, the, seemingly the only people that don't know that. Martin Bishop is Martin Bryce are the people he works with on a daily basis. So Marty says they found him. They offered him a deal and uh, Marty's and Liz says she'll do it, but they're not getting back together. And Marty says, don't flatter yourself. She leaves and he's like, yes. So very cute. Uh, very cute, that. except for maybe the age mismatch here. It doesn't seem like a 56. I think, I think, Mary, I mean, I, who am I to judge? But Mary <laughs> McDonald is significantly younger than Robert Redford. In, that in did not movie. jump out at me. I, oh, at really? some point no. later in the movie, though, it did jump on me that, like, Robert Redford, we've touched on it already, but I was like, how old is this guy supposed to be in this movie? <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess he's old. Uh, he's supposed to be slightly older than we are, and uh, but he's actually just a little bit older than we are, which is weird to think about. Uh, so now we cut to a math lecture. I love this. This guy's wearing a like a white shirt, white suit. He's on stage, and there's an overhead projector projecting math equations on top of his suit. I love oh. it. This guy's like Mr. Math. And Marty asks Liz if she's seeing someone and Liz shishes him and says, Hey, uh, this isn't just about large number theory. It's about cryptography. And Marty kind of plays dumb. And then Marty starts to pay attention and Liz asks him if he's seeing one and he comes back and shishes her. That's kind of a fun thing. Oh, some great back and forth. Yes. Uh, lecture wraps up and, uh, uh, Janik is, is, uh, is, or before it wraps up, Janik's teasing like, oh, nobody's ever done this yet, but we're on the verge of this and we're cut to the reception and he's got a very diverse set of fans and he's still holding court. Uh, I mean, I've never given a lecture like this guy has done. I've spoken at some conferences and stuff. Never, never quite had this, uh this aftermath of, of the world's most diverse crowd cheering me on after a, a talk I've given. What about you? I, I also haven't. My only experience is basically uh, making fun of uh, a state in front of people from that state and then having them come up to me after my presentation and be like, do you really hate our state? Like, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I it was a terrible, terrible joke. I'm uh, sorry. I re- recall this incident and I do recall before you made that joke, you asked me and I said, I love the joke. And you <laughs> <Yeah. went for> <laughs> Would you, do you want, I mean, you got to at this point tell people what, what it was. Oh yeah. The joke was just, Hey, you know, I've been to a lot of great places doing this kind of work. I've been to Hong Kong and to, uh, to, to China and to Poland and to, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> <laughs> right in the front row, three people from Omaha, Nebraska, staring with blank faces back at me after making that joke. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they should, they should have a little bit more of a sense of humor about that. I'm sure they do. Um, so Liz at this point, so we're, so, uh, Janik's holding court and Liz is whispering to Marty, Hey, I'm sure he has figured this out already. Like he's pretending that, you know, maybe these numbers can be factored, but he's obviously had a breakthrough. Otherwise he wouldn't be given lectures like this. Mm. And then Martin bumps into a buddy of his Greg, who is obviously kind of former KGB. He goes on and then, you know, Marty sends Greg over to bother Liz and uh, you know, this guy is, is kind of a schmoozer he invites them to a Kiev string quartet in exchange for maybe a future favor. Uh, it, but then we see, and Martin all this time is kind of keeping eyes on Janik, who's then interrupted by a woman uh, who whispers in his ear. They leave immediately, and Martin decides to follow him, and Liz is like, well, I'll take a cab home, and that he should be careful. So... Marty then meets up with the crew who's already in the surveillance van and mother's hanging off some scaffolding in the office building again. (laughs) And and he's wearing like four safety harnesses. Very. I think that that's what I would do in this situation. I would have like eight safety harnesses on. I hate (laughs) climbing ladders. So that's me. 
Yeah, I, I, I also would have on the eight safety harnesses. I remember the first time I ever went to one of those indoor rock climbing gyms that like basically had to wait for my arms to fatigue themselves to fall off of the wall to get belayed <laughs> down because I did not want to let go. So yeah, maybe even nine harnesses I would be wearing. Nine harnesses. Yeah. Okay. So they're at this point sp- spying on uh, Janik's office and they're looking around for the box and they don't see it, right? This little black box that they've been told about. But uh, uh, Janik's about to log into his computer. So they're like, oh, that's great. And all of a sudden we get a knock on the door. It's the same wooden from before who is Dr. Rishka, I guess. And they start getting a little hot and heavy, Dennis. Mm. Oh, yeah, this is getting uh, steamy. Getting steamy, and young Carl says he wants to get on the binoculars. <laughs> and Crease <laughs> tells him to grow up, and then he whispers to Marty, says, uh, hey, can I, can I get on those binoculars? <laughs> so, All right, very- so this is our second hacker movie with uh, overt voyeurism happening in it. Sort of, but when they cut back, it's very G-rated. Oh, very, yes. Very <laughs> like, uh, they cut back, and Janik is, like, pushing her away and says he's got to work. Then he logs in. She's kind of in the way of the keyboard, and then then it maybe ramps up a little bit more. She's, you know, nippling on his ear, hot and heavy. Now, it goes from PG to PG-13, which is what this movie is rated. She closes the blinds, and basically the op is over. And then we're back at the office and mother is kind of stepping through the video and crease is kind of providing some more background on the woman Rishka. And they're trying to play back from the video and try to kind of shoulder surf this password. And they're all huddled around. It's not working. And eventually Bishop says, Hey, we can't see it. Um, But Whistler has been just listening, right? He's blind. Mm. So he, his superpower is hearing and he chimes up and says hey guys the black box is between the pencil jar and the lamp and how does he know that because rishkov is saying that she left a like voicemail with his service and that he wasn't calling her back and so when they kept looping the video back the video and audio back he kept hearing that sentence repeated and while they were concentrated at trying to see what finger, like what keys he was hitting to find out what his password was, Whistler was just, you know, sort of processing what he was listening to and realizing right. that the, the um, answer machine would be redundant if he has a service. Exactly. Do you want now? I think you have to explain what an answering machine is to all the kids out there. <laughs> an answering machine used to be a device that was hooked up to your telephone. You actually had a telephone hardwired in your home, so I need to even explain that. Mm-hmm. So you had a physical telephone hardwired next to it, another machine that had a tape in it, a cassette tape. And if you weren't home and the phone rang enough times, it engaged the answering machine and the people would leave a message after the beep. And that's what an answering machine is. Yeah. Great. Well done. Um, so, so we go back in the van and we're on a new op. So based on this, this experience, they know that they got to get this answering machine and Marty's practicing lock picking. What do you think of Marty's lock picking skills in this video? Uh, I myself have not ever picked a lock, so not the best judge, but, uh, 
uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess it's tough. Not, for me. not so realistic. So he's holding these locks basically with his left hand and picking it with his right. There's no torsion bar, right? So mm. usually lock picking, you're using a torsion bar as to turn the cylinder while you try to set the pins. And he's just fiddling with the pins because he has his other hand is just holding up the whole monstrosity that he's picking. So not that realistic. Doesn't turn out to matter too much. We'll get into it for a second. But mother is mother is wiring him for sound. And at this point, he does. This is where he's talking about the the uh, that that the same mic he's using is the one that they use to fake the Apollo moon landings. <laughs> oh, okay, you are so right. Okay, yes, yeah. this is where it happens, and this is my favorite conspiracy theory of all time. Uh, thanks to being at a very impressionable young age and seeing something on Fox growing up that they had a one hour moon landing conspiracy uh, special that I just freaking loved. It was just so rife with uh, pseudoscience and everything like that, that I, I, I was just totally hooked. Yeah. Awesome. So we're on the op and so Marty comes in and Basically, Marty walks up the front desk, and the front desk guy is already arguing with this this delivery guy who's trying to drop off a bunch of Drano. And you know, Marty's like, "Hey, did my wife drop off a cake for me?" And the guy, the front desk guy, says, oh, "I don't see anything." He's he's in this other conversation. It's very uh, busy, right? That's the energy of it. And you know, Marty's like, "Well, she's supposed to drop it off on the second floor." I haven't seen anything. Then there's a horn outside and Marty walks off. And then we see that the Drano delivery guy is actually Carl. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of in this picture to keep the front desk worker kind of anxious and occupied with this Drano delivery thing. Marty comes back and he's got his hands full, right? Supposedly he's got a giant cake and balloons and he's using this Carl tension with the delivery guard as it's like, Hey, can you open the turnstile for me? And there's all this buzz. And eventually he's just like, Hey, can you open the damn turnstile? And that is kind of the pre the, the pretext here. And the guy buzzes him through and Marty's now in the building with the box and balloons. Yeah. See, this was the scene that I was alluding to earlier when we were talking about the definition of a confidence man. So this was mine where I was like, Oh, I felt like it's, you know, the, the, the con man is the one exuding the confidence. And so when he sort of somewhat in a PG way swears at the security guard front desk guy, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what sort of, that's what, that's what I was thinking. That's why I thought that it's, it's the perpetrator is the one that is having all the confidence. Well, I believe in the famous Will Smith confidence man movie, which I forget what it's called. Maybe confidence. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) I give you my confidence, something along the lines. Oh, so I think okay. we're both right. Okay. I mean, based on the Will Smith movie, I think we're both right. <laughs> so at this point, Marty's in the building. The building. Uh, he's got a box and balloons, and he pulls a briefcase out of the box, drops a balloon and briefcase, and he walks up to the door, and dun, 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 it's a cipher lock. So he was practicing on that standard lock, right, that we saw in the thing. He was warming up. And he calls the crease on the radio and crease says, don't, you know, he's like, Hey, anybody know how to beat this? I think he calls it electronic keypad lock. And crease says, don't even joke. Those things are impossible. Uh, what do you think? I mean, 
are those things really impossible? I mean, it's to me the the setup they have in the movie is not exactly something. I mean, it's it's maybe a little bit more modern than I was thinking of. But those, the one thing I I do know about from Red Team, I'm not a huge Red Teaming guy, but your standard like IT closet combination push button cipher lock thing, uh, classic way that they defeat those is by using, and this is not what's represented in the movie at all, but they, you know, those classic cipher locks, mm-hmm. you magnetize, you, you use a very strong magnet on the side and that collapses the linkage and then you can turn the lock without uh, putting in the code. So there are some things uh, to, to tackle these types of locks. I did like, I looked at the door, I did like the fact that like, there's no obvious other problems with the door that you can maybe exploit in an easier way, meaning like the hinges are on the inside. So the hinges aren't exposed to attack. There doesn't appear to be, you know, a gap that you could shim through. So the lock, the, the, the door and lock does seem pre pretty realistically, you know, difficult that it would trigger this situation to me. Yeah, I, I'm not a big lock guy, but mm-hmm. um, actually, when you're talking about that magnet, what is there a name for that kind of very yeah, powerful magnet, like Earth something? Uh, yeah, it's it's called like the something magneto <laughs> or something like that. You know, it's like, okay. I think yeah, I it see- does have a cute name. Yeah, uh, it does. Have, okay, but uh, yeah, no, I did like. I mean, you know, I, I appreciated it enough the for Sparrow like Sparrow Magneto. Of the- the $29. The Sparrow Magneto. Okay, not what I was thinking it's, of, but... It's got 96 pounds of pull it, pulling force, right? So you use this 96-pound thing and attach it to the housing, and it, it then collapse. It basically draws in this linkage to give it traction so that you can pin the thing. So if you're attacking a, a traditional mechanical cipher lock, look up the Sparrow Magneto. Hmm, Okay. Rare earth magnets. Is that what I'm thinking of? Anyway, I don't know. This yeah, well, rare point. earth magnets are are powerful magnets. So okay, this would that be is probably made of rare earth magnet. So he's got to call this into Kreese, and he's and he, this is a cute thing. He's like, hey, I've got this thing. Anybody know how to beat this? Mother is looking through what maybe is reminiscent of like the big book of mischief or something. He's got a binder, and he says, hey, a buddy of mine, you know, sent this to me. Uh, a buddy of mine from Desert Storm sent this to me, and, and then he tags it with, of course, he was on the other side. Um, and uh, so Crease then starts reading and says, all right, Marty, this might work. And I love this gag. So it's like we we are only now watching Bishop, and we don't hear Crease, and Bishop's just like, the idea is that Crease is giving him all these instructions and Bishop is like saying, okay, uh-huh, yep, got it, uh-huh, got it. He does that for like two minutes, and then he's like, okay, I'll give it a shot, and he just kicks the door in. <laughs> <laughs> I did love that. So Bishop grabs the answering machine, uh, takes the top off. It's obvious it's not an actual answering machine because it's got some uh, wacky circuits in. And then the woman from before, Dr. Rishka, comes in and interrupts him, and Bishop kind of kidnaps her just <laughs> like yeah. covering his mouth pretty sketchy uh and then she asks who he is and, and he goes quiet and at this point 
the boys on his earpiece are helping him make up the backstory. And this is a real fun, fun moment. Um, so they tell him to pretend to be a PI hired by Janik's wife. And she's like, there isn't a wife, but, uh, Marty remembers, uh, something about Mexico city from before. And he's like, well, who do you think paid for the Mexico city vacation? Uh, and then it just, yeah, it's, it's great. So Marty's convincing her that he's a PI, but then he's, he's got to stop her from telling Janik about getting caught. So he makes up a story that he hates it. He actually hates his, the person that hired him. And she, the, she's so vindictive and that the worst thing, uh, Dr. Rishka to do is actually tell Janik about it because then, you know, it would ruin this thing. And, uh, and we get, our one and only chess reference to this movie. Did you hear this? They're just pawns. Yeah. Uh, Marty tells Rishka his, is trying to, that his client is petty, just trying to ruin Janik and she shouldn't let it happen. You and me are just pawns in this ugly little game. Um, I'm kind of offended for pawns. Like pawns are a very powerful component of chess. Great defenders. Um, I actually feel like this is, that's the only reference verbally, but there is a visual reference to chess. I think Robert Redford in a later scene is actually sitting. There's a chess. He's sitting behind a chessboard. Um, uh, once they realize what this, what, what the box can do anyway. Huh? Yeah. I did not catch that. Yeah. So we get a few kind of more confusing notes, like even in the thing, like Robert Redford's like, yeah, obviously, whatever I just said was very confusing, but <laughs> there's there's kind of a crass line that they feed him, in, but Bishop flags it in time so he doesn't repeat it. Everybody's laughing, uh, and we cut to loft party. They've got the box. They're back at the clubhouse, and Liz is dancing with everyone. And the set decoration in this movie is amazing. They've gone all out. We got balloons, Christmas lights, <laughs> and we go through basically – we see everybody dancing with Liz. Crease is kind of looking a little bit like a creep, which is weird because his wife is also there at the party. <laughs> Whistler looks insane. I guess we really find out in this scene that Whistler's been blind his entire life because he's never seen people dance before. <laughs> that's what I took. That's what I took away from this scene. Uh, Mother's like good. Mother's like a pretty classy swing dancer, and Carl's kind of got this like spazzy, not really sure what's going on there. But Liz loves it. Oh yeah, she's she's smiling the entire time. Yeah, I, you know, I almost feel like there's some sort of backstory between Mother and Liz with their, you know, just based off their dancing. I feel like that, that sneakers oh, too. They... Maybe they'll touch on that. Ooh, you think that they? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. So more party and uh, I love a great office party. And this, I do think that hits the office party vibe pretty well. well. (laughs) It does hit it pretty well, except for the fact that there's not just somebody completely obliterated at this this party. Because there's always one at an office party. So, and then, you know, we get more character definition here so we get mother talking to mrs crease about area 51 <laughs> we get carl talking to bishop about kind of what you know why he and cosmo did what they did now that it's out of the bag and bishop kind of says well he was young there was a war and it was a good way to meet girls and carl's really into that because in this movie river phoenix and slash carl is is oh just trying to get some some love and uh 
uh, Bish explains that he didn't get caught or because he went for pizza. It wasn't like he was good at not getting caught. Um, and then he went to Canada and Bishop now confirms that Cosmo died in prison. And, but by the way, I think that, yeah, you know, ahead. once again, though, he's saying, well, why did you get into like computers? And he's saying for, <laughs> for the girls, I just thought that also I was well, like, not, it's not why he got into computers is like, why did you, commit that crime or why, why did you try to give money from one group to another or whatever? And I think it's, it's a, that was his, you know, civil rights activism. Don't you mm, think like, okay. Have you watched the, uh, what is it called? This, the Chicago seven movie at all? I have not. Netflix? No, it's pretty good. It, it talks about, uh, you know, the, the civil rights activists. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting, but I think that, you know, yeah, obviously it's, this is the same time period. One is a true story. One is not a true story, but this was, the, this was Martin's civil rights activism was to use okay. this frontier of, you know, electronic and hacking to empower people, right? They call him Robin Hood later on, I think for a second or whatever. But. So then we get the, the other bit of character definition we get besides the dancing is Bish kind of says, well, what are you guys going to do with the money, right? So the creases want to go to Europe. Mother wants a Winnebago with – this is the other reason that I'm just like mother is because mother wants a conversion van. <laughs> like he wants a Winnebago with a great kitchen. Like, yeah, that's exactly what I would do with $75,000. Um, okay, but hold on, hold on, hold on. There's yeah, another but- thing here he wants something very specific in that Winnebago and not the kitchen, not the big kitchen. What's the other specific thing that he wants in the Winnebago? The waterbed. Yes. Do these even still exist? Could I go out and buy a waterbed from someone? I don't know. I don't know about that if they exist or not. And I don't know if you could go out and buy one. I would assume that you could. I would say for a Winnebago, it's a really bad choice because you're, you know, every gallon of water weighs eight pounds, right? So if you're creating a, if you're putting a water bed in a van like that, right? You know, I mean, minimum, it's uh, that's got to be like two thousand. <laughs> like that's going to be the you're you're grossly going to exceed your your vehicle weight rating with a water bed for sure. Um, oh, that's I, what I know about. That just struck me as something very dated. In fact, I even wonder if like. Kids today would even know what a waterbed is. Luckily, you're here to t- to explain waterbeds and answering machines to kids. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, side note: Did you ever know anyone that owned a waterbed? Yes, yeah, I did. I, I've been in some friends' houses or whatever. That yeah, I had been in a bed. friend's house. One, like one friend's house, who some I don't even remember who it was. I just remember actually seeing a waterbed and like you know getting to like sit on it, but. I, I don't think <laughs> a waterbed is crazy to me. It just seems like that would not, that's not how I would envision having a also, good night rest. When I was very young, I saw one of the, one of the Freddy Krueger movies has like a scary scene with a waterbed. Like the person gets trapped in the waterbed or something. Like Ooh. That. So scary. So I would never want one because I saw that scene like way too young or whatever. And I was like, Ooh, um, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> That's one of the things okay. stays with you. Okay, that's so. That just din- me. Dinner's over. You're at a work party. What do you do? You play Scrabble, right? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, you, you strip me as somebody who'd be eating, a- drinking. Time yeah. for Scrabble. 
you strike me as somebody who'd be pretty good at Scrabble. I love Scrabble. You love it. Yeah. Your, your guy's like, hey, why are you wasting that S? You got to use that later on. Do a, a hang off another word. Build your yeah. new word. I mean, the real secret argue- for, for Scrabble and any, you know, or words with friends for the, for the young kids, you know, mm-hmm. you got to use those bonus tiles. That's it. It's bonus a race tiles. to using the bonus tiles. If only just to prevent other people from using them. Right. So if you if you see a triple letter, triple word, you got to burn those out. Got to burn them so out. That, yeah. You salt the earth. <laughs> Scorched earth Scrabble policy is what They're I They're arguing. Okay, Mr. Scrabble guy. They're arguing over Scrunchy. Is Scrunchy a legit uh, Scrabble word? Is it a valid Scrabble word? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I would count it. I think that Scrunchy, the thing that girls would use in their hair for like a ponytail is a Scrunchy. So... He was trying to define it as what she was doing with her face at the time and saying mm-hmm. that her face is scrunchy and which actually I might allow. I think, I mean, I think that that is a, I definitely would allow it for the hair thing. If to say that your face looks scrunchy, I think I actually could be convinced that that is, that's valid. Google says yes. Okay. That's a word. So Martin is, uh, is correct. Um, but at this point, so we've got a couple, four people. Basically, the crease, uh, crease and his wife are playing uh, Martin and Liz, Marty and Liz in Scrabble. And on the other side of the room, Whistler and Whistler starts fiddling with the box and using Carl's eyes for help. And so they're basically doing a little embedded hacking. And I sent a note out. To my boy, uh, Josh Berry, to get mm. some feedback on how this embedded hacking looks. He said he would take a look at it, but it hasn't gotten back to me yet. So I don't have <laughs> any insights. But I do think it's fairly uh, somewhat reasonable. Basically, they're doing the kind of probe thing, and they're they're messing with different contexts. And at some point, I could, in my head, at some point, they get kind of, okay, we've got an RS-232 feed or something like that, and it's dumping out mostly gibberish and, and then all of a sudden we get what looks like equations not doesn't look like code i mean maybe it looks like variable assignments but it no i know, thought the finally, same exact thing and that like it looked like equations to me equations but some of i mean equate i mean variable assignments look like equations too right so it might be code but it's kind of hard to tell from but a lot more mathy than it does look like exactly code. that's how i describe it yeah Quick, this is Kevin. Uh, Josh did get back to me uh, later on, and here are some of his thoughts. Um, Josh uh, Josh Berry is a uh, embedded security expert, and uh, he says I always typically parallel or multi pin, even if serial. So usually uh, has to be held pretty pretty firm and steady. But uh, mother, you know, might just have some exceptional probing abilities. Uh, on the level of some type of robot or maybe a good surgeon. So he doesn't have too much criticism about holding the probe. And he says, for fun, let's say all the interface signals on the device were a single pin wire. Even if it's a single pin serial, there still may be different ways that the data will get sent. So they make it seem like the magic probe kind of diagnostic device is going to capture and in, deprobe, in or they're just assuming, I guess, that it's um, you know some type of specific... Uh, serial mode uh, method, but that kind of skips over glosses, you know, what would be required to really interpret and decode the signals. Uh, most of the analyzers today 
don't auto detect a signal and decode it to a display, but they should. <laughs> Josh wants that feature, and someone should create one that will do it on a text-based display to mimic their tool. Um, but overall, IO probing uh, does uh, IO bus uh, probing and IO bus does yield information that, with uh, with some effort, can be uh, decoded and interpreted. And as a side note, uh, Josh thinks that the Braille output interface was super cool, and uh, he loves that the idea would use that kind of technology to overcome a disability. So thanks, Josh. Which, now, I've also worked with people that at one time did work at the NSA in these government agencies, and they did do this type of thing. They would build code into boxes that when you tried to take apart the boxes, they would kind of self-destruct a little bit, right? So actually, this whole thing in terms of like, why embed the secrets into a hardware a piece of hardware like this does hold up to me a little bit from, from that, that experience. Hmm. Um, so they're doing this probe thing and Chris is getting antsy and says, Hey, just why don't you guys leave it alone? And then meanwhile, Marty and Liz start like C-Tech astronomy doesn't mean anything, right? This is the C-Tech astronomy was mentioned before in mm-hmm. the conversation with Dennis and <laughs> trying to sell it on it. And so they start doing these uh, using the Scrabble tiles to rearrange C-Tech astronomy while in in parallel with Whistler and Carl messing with the box. And okay, so uh, does Monterey's coast mean anything to you, Dennis? It doesn't not mean anything to me. What about my Socrates note? (laughs) That also doesn't mean anything. What about Cootie's rat semen? Does that mean anything to you? (laughs) Wait! Wait, say that one again. Cootie's rat semen. Yes. Uh, I think that that, uh, that means that Marty's old partner must be involved somehow. (laughs) (laughs) What about this? So Marty and Liz are both fumbling with the tiles, right? This, to me, kind of reeks of two people typing on the same keyboard. No, like, can you imagine you and somebody else arranging the same set of tiles into words at the same time? Oh, well, by the way, if I was uh, Crease's wife, I'd be like, uh, hey, what the hell? Are we still playing Scrabble or what is going on right now? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's all I can think about is because uh, Robert Redford's character, like Marty just out of nowhere starts being like, ah, C-Tech astronomy, like no context, just dumps out the tile bag and starts doing something completely separate from the game without sharing anything with anyone else. Yeah, that Mrs. Crease, very patient. So, and then finally, around the same time, we get clarity on what the box is doing and that the last anagram for uh, C-Tech Astronomy is too many secrets, which I, does that even mean? <laughs> I'm not so sure. No, that, like, that and, okay. So uh, there's a couple, I've got notes here that are classified um, into kudos, which I'm like, Hey, okay. great job with the movie. And then I've got other things, which are more of me being Debbie Downer. And this was the first one in here, which is why does too many secrets mean anything? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. So, like, for that being, like, had Cosmo said that in their first scene, mm-hmm. then yeah, I'm like, that's great. Let's, that, well, that's a Cosmo clear tie. Is not involved in the definition of too many secrets, by the way. So, we'll get into this, but 
let's let's move forward and I'll kind of connect back on this too many secrets thing. Okay, okay. It does take a little parsing out to figure out like, well, who came up with the name SeaTech Astronomy? So the output of the box uh, we talked about, and then Whistler calls Bish over, right, and asks Carl, hey, get your little black book of modem numbers. At one point, I did not have a little black book, but I did have some like numbers that I had been researched or like local stuff, right? So he's got basically modems that answer, right? Yeah. Whether acquired from whatever. And he picks, and, and Whistler said, hey, pick something that's impossible to access. They pick the pre- pre- Federal Reserve. They call it up, and basically we see a scrambled terminal window, and Whistler plums the box in, right, and it scrambles the screen. Now, a few notes on this, right? First of all, the encryption appears to not affect white space ever, right? So everything that you see, like none of the spaces are encrypted. Yes. That seems to be a vulnerability in this encryption scheme, no? Yes, agreed. Second thing, the encryption also has like no padding, which is true of many encryptions, but the input and output size are identical all the time. True? Yes, true. And then we also see that, okay, like we can assume that this is supposed to be basically an analog for DES encryption, which was basically the FIPS standard from 77 until 1999, until they switched to 3DES. So the decryption, you know, like we're supposed to basically think that this box breaks DES. Now we didn't know it at the time that this movie release was released, but basically the NSA could already break DES from the beginning Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I mean, again, not, it's not, not a political podcast, but the NSA had, people involved in the the standardization of DES and they convinced the authors of DES who were some IBM people and, and other people, they commit, they basically negotiated a symmetric key size standard of 56 bits. They were pushing for 48 bits and the original I think was like 64 bits and they ended on being 56 bits because that was kind of the tip of the, you know, the NSA could confidently break that based on their computing power and other people couldn't. So it's kind of that sweet spot of like, mm. yeah, we want everybody to have encryption that only we can break. Well, you, <laughs> right? yes. And what is funny about this is I didn't say it because of your note about us not being a political podcast, but when business Dennis is talking about them breaking other guys' codes, my note to bring up here was and weaken everybody else's encryption as well <laughs> from earlier yeah in the movie. and then the other the other thing about this as we get toward later on and i mean there's there's we'll we'll touch on kind of the real this this these patterns ended up being way more real than i oh think my we gave this yeah. movie credit for right so the encryption visual you know looks actually a lot like the war games code breaking scene at the end so all these little things kind of pivot in their own space and then they end up being decrypted and also none of these systems i mean it's None of these systems have any login stuff. It's all just this encryption <laughs> key, which I, I mean, it's probably again another cheat, right? Like of, I mean, we know logins exist, right? Because they tried to sniff. I, I mean, we knew logins exist in '92, but even in the context of the movie, Janik Janik is typing in a password at one point. None of these systems end up having any authentication mechanism it's all just this encryption mechanism right well, uh, well I guess my, we're supposed my to... voice is my passport 
Well, yeah, that's the the thing later on. But for these for these systems, yeah, you would assume okay, even if they were, you know, the 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 serial lines of these modems were symmetrically encrypted with some key, you'd probably also see some type of authentication mechanism. Yeah. So they they basically get the same Federal Reserve decryption thing that we saw in the beginning of the movie. It's like it's been more than 20 years but it's the same visual effects is really just loving this word processor <laughs> you know <laughs> like um but they they decrypt the frb page the reserve bank they do the same with the national power grid that one looks much more graphical so somebody got their money's mm, worth on mm-hmm. the graphics for that air traffic control again looks looks uh pretty uh looks pretty graphical and liz is now like liz is getting nervous and she's and crease is getting super nervous and trying to get him to knock it off and liz explains to the audience that you know janik found a way to to uh to break these prime numbers and has kind of written that into the box which is very the the this math piece right is pretty good right like you know these crypto mechanisms are although you know it, it does kind of mix a little bit of public cryptography and the symmetric stuff and these different mechanisms but you know the you know the the prime number pairs are are largely used i think in in just the the pki stuff i'm sure there's implications you know for for different math stuff that i don't understand in symmetric cryptography too but being able to to break to to being able to factorize prime numbers would definitely give you more of a leg up, I think, in PKI stuff. No, uh, I think so. Yes. So at this point, Liz is like, "Okay, yeah, we this guy's obviously done it. Put it into the box." Crease sends his wife and daughter away, and then gets his revolver out of his desk, his service revolver from the CIA, and which uh, would be illegal in San Francisco to this day. You cannot have handguns in San Francisco, so these guys are already breaking crimes. Chris, uh hey says until we get this handoff tomorrow morning we're locking things down Liz is about to leave but Chris stops her so this is the second felony in about two minutes that Chris <laughs> performs Chris is now kidnapping Liz and says she knew Bitch's Secret along with about 40 other people so far and somebody must have talked and Bish doesn't really seemingly stand up for her at all. You'd think that Bish, if he was trying to get uh, Martin, uh, Bishop, if he was trying to get back together, would be like, hey, Chris, back off. Yeah, she's you kept know? my secret this whole time. By the way, this is yeah. where Bish is sitting behind the chessboard. Oh, okay. I didn't catch that. But I like it. So um, everyone goes into lockdown. Liz is pissed. Chris is playing with his gun at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just like, uh, seems a little dangerous. Liz is on her way. So the next morning, Liz is on her way out. She has this funny line where she's like, guys, I really enjoyed sleeping with all of you guys. I wish you the best, which I think is just like a fun line for the audience. I mean, it's like, I don't know how funny it would be in person, but no, it's great. Oh, good. Uh, she's cold towards Marty, which is reasonable because she was kidnapped all night. <laughs> And then Crease and Marty go to deliver the box to the NSA and Dennis is there and asks Bish if he wants a cappuccino. Now you've been up all night and you roll up and you, Dennis, offer yourself a cappuccino. Would you take it? Oh, I take it. And by the way, yeah, don't you love Bish's car? 
Is this oh yeah, what is it like? like an old Aston Martin or something? I didn't. I don't know. I could not place this car. I'd not seen something like that before. I I would assume. Yeah, that. I mean, that it, it is. But it's cool. got like this I don't MG. Know I mean, it's bigger than an MG. It, yeah, to me, I was thinking like, well, maybe that's an Aston Martin. You know, that was import like or produce. You know, whatever. Hmm. I'm not sure what years they were produced here, but but um, these NSA guys are stoked. Also, we have been in this situation. <laughs> in which I have been up for 24 hours. We have both been up for like 24 hours and we are waiting for a meeting or whatever. And we just were fed lattes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So I I, it does feel, it does feel true. Rings true. It right? does ring true. Yes. Kevin, do you want another latte? <laughs> um, I'd rather go to sleep, but yes, I guess I'll drink another latte. Um, so these guys, the NSA guys are pretty stoked. And then Chris looks down and sees a paper in the back seat. Which I don't know who delivers this paper to the back <laughs> of Vicious <laughs> Car. That's what I was thinking why, too. Why? Why did they look at a newspaper uh, box? You know those old things that you like put a quarter in and like you'd pull out a newspaper. Why didn't they put it in one? Like that should have been. The well, method, I know? guess they wouldn't have done that for the movie because the only headline that you're going to be like because it's only it's the headline, right? The front page headline, and that's not where this bit of information was in the newspaper, right? So well, they could have put it on the front page. I mean, it is I mean, they could have, but is that front page? <laughs> is that front page? I don't know. Anyway, I don't know either, but, um, yeah. So he sees that Jonic was, Janik was murdered. The mathematician was murdered. Then crease gets Marty's attention to come back by telling him he's got a call from his mother on the car phone. You ever have these car? What's your deal with car phones? You oh, ever see this? Yeah, I have seen car phones. My brother Chris was the first. Actually, no, my dad's government car uh, had a car phone in it, and then my brother Chris, um, in the mid nineties, had a car phone in it as well. So I used to get a kick when my dad would drive the government car home, go in the driveway, call the house. My mom answers, "It's me." from the driveway. <laughs> yeah. My dad was definitely the first person I knew that had a car phone, um, in order to return like hospital pages. Like I remember very young, we would stop at like pay phones and stuff and he would return. My dad didn't even eat, like when I was super young, he didn't even have a numerical pager. Like it didn't like put a number on. He actually had a pager that had a little radio and a voice and he would have to listen for his name in the voice of the thing <laughs> it was insane yeah i mean like pagers in the early late 70s early 80s they were just like little radio receivers and i remember my dad listening to a voice and he was so good at hearing his name on this thing i was like what are you doing and then he would like stop but so my dad very early had like this motorola which these phones all use the amps network um so you'd basically make a call on a 64K radio channel, um, totally analog. And yeah, they're great. Oh, um, yeah. I just remember being remember told, like, do not ever make a call on this thing. It's super expensive. <laughs> yeah, it was expensive. Um, so Chris hustles Marty out of there, and then they're leaving, and, and he's explaining that, hey, Janik was murdered, and Marty throws – not even what I would call a U-turn. He like throws an ampersand turn in the middle of San Francisco. <laughs> Heads to uh, what he thinks is their office, right? Because he went and visited Dennis at his office. And the whole building is gone <laughs> at this point, <laughs> which is great. So 
then we see Bish getting his own revolver out of his desk. Mm. So another another felony, another uh, illegal firearm in San Francisco. He storms off to catch up with Greg, the KGB guy who is on a date with a girl about half his age. I would estimate. Oh, totally. And Marty at this point holds his friend at gunpoint. Greg says he should trust him and he can fill him in, but not there. They drive off in a limo, which gets pulled over by the FBI. So they pull Bish out of Greg's limo and they find his revolver and, you know, oh, Bish is going to get slapped with, uh, you know, San Francisco, uh, you know, uh, gross misdemeanor or felony to possess a handgun. Nope. What do they do? They shoot Greg with it. So they're framing Bish for Greg's murder. Yeah. And by the way, like I knew something I could like, I have seen this movie a few times. I did not remember the scene. However, I did know something bad was going to happen because the guy that is patting down uh, Robert Redford, you know, Marty, uh-huh. he's wearing tight black leather gloves. And oh, nothing ever good happens when someone is wearing tight black leather gloves in a movie or in real life. It's just, that's just, that's just a, a uh-huh. something that always holds Yeah, true. the OJ Simpson theory. Right? Yes. Gotcha. Um, so they kill Greg and, and at this point, Wallace comes up. So the bad cop, right? Dennis's partner and Wallace has this like great thing he does where he constantly (laughs) punches people with, it's like a gun slap. Yep. So it's not like a pistol whip. Mm -mm. He puts the gun broadside in his hand and pushes it into people's faces. Yeah. Now, um, your dad is, uh, got, uh, you know. Very uh, long career in law enforcement. Have you ever ran this technique by your dad of like, hey, let me palm a pistol and then push it into somebody's face? <laughs> Smushing a gun into somebody's face? Yeah. I am unfamiliar with this technique. It was, it is my dad's birthday today. I should have asked him about this uh, when Did I was. You, on well, the- you should definitely, if you didn't call him, please call him up on the podcast. We'll listen in. And, uh, <laughs> I did. I did call him already, but I, I, I maybe, maybe for uh, whatever the next movie review is, we could, at the top of the session, gotcha. I'll ask him about it. So Marty wakes up. He's in a very spacious trunk. That's the good news about being kidnapped in the early nineties. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of room back there. <laughs> Um, he lights a match, which we never see Marty smoke. I'm not sure why he has matches. Um, but whatever, maybe he's just very prepared. So he's awake for a bit. Trunk opens, bad cop gun slaps him again. (laughs) Wallace does the exact same thing. Marty now wakes up on the floor in a room, some very nice Hindenburg artwork behind him. Did you notice this? I did not. Is this the, is that what the artist is? It looks like outlines of gangsters almost. Is that? Oh, that I also noticed. But I'm commenting on the Hindenburg, like the blimp oh, that exploded. I go, There's I some it. artwork of the blimp, I think, that was like, okay, well, that's kind of pessimistic. So ah, that was part of it. I didn't catch And then that. we get Ben's, Ben Kingsley's there, right? And he does the, hey, which hand is this thing in? And uh, if that's not enough to clue the, us dumb us dumb viewers in on it, <laughs> Bish says, oh, you're Cosmo, right? And somehow um, in prison, Cosmo got a very thick, weird British accent. (laughs) This is a hard year. I mean, like, okay, 
it's Ben Kingsley. He's done some great work, mm-hmm. right? Gandhi, uh, House of Sand and Fog. The guy does accents. The one accent he can't do, which is emphasized by both this movie and the other 1992 favorite movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer, where in both movies he's supposed to play somebody, I think, ostensibly from New York. They're both bad. He cannot do a Brooklyn accent or whatever this is. So actually, and you recently read a uh, a book by Bruce Pandolfini, who yes. Ben Kingsley plays in that uh, Searching for Bobby Fisher movie. But his accent in this playing a uh, Cosmo, I, I think his first name is actually not, I think Cosmo is his last name in this movie or whatever, but it's bad. No. Oh, it's bad. Weird. Again, yeah. It's like weird. drifting. It's weird. Yeah, you can't place it. Like I'm even having trouble connecting Ben King, like the way that this character looks to the Why not just have the guy exactly. who played Cosmo in the beginning of the movie, who has also gone on to be a good actor, was a good actor at the time, is famous and has a real voice. I think in the beginning of the movie, they're replacing whoever that, uh, I don't know who you thought it was. You said that. I thought it was Gary Gary Busey Busey. plays the young Robert Redford in the beginning. But Robert Redford, I think is doing the voiceover for that. But the other guy is just doing himself. That other guy should have done the voiceover for Ben Kingsley in the later part of the movie, <laughs> like in my yeah. opinion. So, also um, off-putting about Ben Kingsley's character when he reemerges is the button-down shirt where he buttons the top button but isn't wearing a tie. That is a very <laughs> well sinister, evil. Look. Now you're going to get some hate mail from our uh, our Persian listeners, of which you know I'm half Persian. We're going to need a lot. Do you do you do that? You. No, but uh, in in post revolution uh, Iran, uh, the 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 tie is seen as a uh, kind of a a symbol of Western influence and 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 not not so. That's why like Ahmed Dimajad and stuff like that never wore ties. Like so, it'd be like, oh, that guy's got a pretty casual look for being the president of a country. No, <laughs> but they don't. I, like it's ties. not. But would he still button the top button? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you see a lot of stuff like that. Anyway, oh, okay. let's let's uh, maybe get away from the okay. again. Not a politics. <laughs> okay. Not right. a political podcast. Right. Cosmo gives the backstory here. Right, <laughs> he's in prison. And he does some phantom freak stuff that we see reminisce mm-hmm. from hackers. He's he's hanging up the phone and dialing the the hang up button ten times or doing a little uh, whistle into the the phone to get free calls. And he's doing that, and he does it for some mob guys. They love it. They help him fake his death. They get him released, and he basically becomes a CTO for the mob. That's his backstory. Yes, and, and I he love gives. What- <laughs> I oh, I was going to say, like, yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. you go. You, go. You go. Oh, I was just saying, like, they get to prove this, he gives Marty a demo of a very small spreadsheet. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> yes. He says, I reorganized the entire financial operation, and he pulls up one spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, oh. it looks like a pivot table, and it's like gambling, <laughs> yeah. murder. And there's and like eight has, like, rows in this thing. <laughs> yep, that's the whole mob. <laughs> there it. we go. Oh, oh, yeah. And Cosmos... uh I don't know. It's it's like one of many layers in this thing. Cosmo explains that the entire mob network is protected by the uh, uh, the crypto algorithm that the box can break. So they need the box in order to protect 
the system. Otherwise, they're going to get... Now, now there's some artwork behind them that's two silhouettes, and one is in white and one is in mm. black, and both wearing hats. This seemed, this seemed like something that, you know, very hackerish artwork to me. And definitely symbolic of the movie of having these two silhouettes, one, one white box, one, one black box. Yeah, I can see that. Although they, they did strike me as uh, like gangster attire. You know, and yeah. he's working for oh, the Oh, gangster. I, yeah, I focused on the hat, I guess, which is just maybe that's even retrofitting because I'm not sure the fedora was the same type of symbol it was. Then, <laughs> it definitely uh, had a different meaning in the early 90s than um, the fedora has now. All right. So, but Bish doesn't buy this whole thing that Cosmo just wants the box to protect yeah. his network, right? And then Cosmo points up, kind of saying the room is bugged, and they walk over to this fishbowl. What do you think that they sit on? I, that threw me off too because I felt like they're walking into like the surfer cabinets, like like uh-huh. in there, and they're sitting on. I, it, to me, it actually just actually looked like a couch that was built into. Oh, you're gonna be happy. That oh, okay. I'm Go on ahead. This podcast. This is the. They are sitting on a Cray supercomputer. <laughs> so the Cray supercomputers did have that weird integrated cushy bench. What. Okay. It's like a it's it's a great thing of the 90, 80s and nineties culture that um, and hey I I lived in the building that Cray Supercomputer uh, was Cray's been recently acquired by HP in two thousand nineteen but you know Seymour Cray was a uh, a, a heroic hardware engineer i think we talked a little bit about him in the the hackers episode yes but here we see so actually as soon as marty wakes up he's in front of the cray supercomputer and then as they um which i guess is powering that small spreadsheet (laughs) so um (laughs) but yeah that 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 thing that they go in and sit on is a is a at least a model of a cray super supercomputer which does have a cushy bench to sit on amazing so they they do another round of this posit result conclusion thing. I don't even think they're consistent with the first time. It's not like the speed pop quiz hot shot. Like I think that they <laughs> they kind of break it up. But Marty basically starts naming. Okay, so it's like posit. Um, you know, we control the thing. Banks start failing, and Marty then starts basically naming different types of markets for like two minutes. He's like stock market, commodity markets. Supermarkets, fish markets, <laughs> Costco, men's warehouse. Like he goes on and names a lot of markets. And at the end, it's like Bish asks Cosmo if he's gone crazy. Uh, and that is just like, yeah, you have gone crazy. Whatever, whatever Cosmo says, he's like, yeah, I'm out. So Cosmo's got hurt feelings. And he tells Bish that tomorrow, you know, Russian Greg is going to is going to get found and Bish's fingerprints are on the gun and the FBI is going to run those prints and they could come back as Martin Bryce. But then Cosmo uses the box that was that he got from Marty and uh, adds uh, Martin Bryce as a known alias of Martin Bishop or Mm. the other way around. So now Cosmo's trance wants to hurt Bish back which I guess he's hurt because he got put in prison and this whole thing about the market thing didn't really go that well. (laughs) And uh, Wallace, the gun puncher is there and punches him in the face with a gun the exact same way. Oh no, he's about to do that. And then you, uh, uh, Marty in a sleeper hole, maybe the first time we saw a sleeper hole on TV. 
Well, not for me. Yeah. I would have been watching the sleeper hold back in the uh, Brutus the Barber beefcake uh, days of WWF. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I thought this was like straight out of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu sleeper hold style. but No were, one yeah, in the early on. 90s would have known of Brazilian <laughs> Jiu-Jitsu. They would have definitely known of the WWF sleeper hold. Gotcha. Um, cut to Alcatraz. I'm not yes. sure why, but I guess just the hammer home there in San Francisco for people who weren't paying enough. Well, I, I love that in the movie too because they clearly leave him – like they dump him and Alcatraz is in the background and they, they had to have like superimposed that back there because is that, cause that's like the famous hill, right? That's a very steep. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess there's a lot of steep streets, but I feel like, yeah, they, that's how it had to be because then in every other shot, it's just like at the base of that hill is, or like, you know, what's on behind him is yeah. not Alcatraz anymore. It's just like <laughs> the rest it's, of it. It is a great San Francisco movie. I think, oh, it I, is. I mean, it does, it does use, I mean, maybe only, Rivaled by The Rock, <laughs> is there another? Ooh, okay, yeah, San Francisco. Which I don't know if there's any hacking in that movie, but maybe we could squeeze it in. Uh, so Bish gets <laughs> dumped off on a very steep hill, classic, you know, uh, San Francisco hill. He stumbles off to Liz's apartment. She welcomes him in. She's pretty like weird. I love her attitude in this movie, but it's like always sarcastic, and yet she like pretty quickly is like, "Yeah, I thought you were dead or whatever." <laughs> so she welcomes him in. Bish and her get real mushy. Um, Bish says he can't do it alone, and he's got to pick up the phone and call the boys. And now we got ourselves a movie. Oh, it's on. So the boys all come over to Liz's apartment, and the news is saying that the prints were found in Greg's car and Jan- same prints. Great car in Janet's apartment. It's not putting Marty's face on the news yet. Kreese says they should call the authorities and uh, try to cut a deal. And mother says they'll do 20 years in the electric chair if they go in now because they don't have any. They've got bupkis, he says. And, and Bish says, well, let's make the call and see if it works. Meanwhile, the guys are ruining Liz apartments with the number of antennas, in, <laughs> which it definitely reminds me of, of like the winter of 2018 when I got into ham radio and ruined my wife's house with, <laughs> with antennas, <laughs> like the amount of antennas that they're packing in. But they, at this point, the plan is they draw out what appears to be like a where in the world is Carmen San Diego map of nine different relay stations that Whistler is going to use to hide the phone call origin. So, Mother's also conveniently wired in a lie detector. So they're going to basically call, they do call the NSA using the series of nine hops. And they ask for the director of operations and the operations uh, or the operators like, uh, you need an extension. And Bish is like research. And they're like uh, extension or name. And then eventually says C-Tech astronomy. So this is the point at which Dennis, I can tell you, that the NSA funded the grant for Janik to build the box. And that project name, the NSA project name was SeaTech Astronomy because that's, that's what we know at this point. Like that's how it's connected. So the NSA paid for this box is my guess. Okay. Okay. Um... So not Cosmo. Cosmo didn't, Cosmo knows about the box, wants to get the box, but the NSA, I think, funded the box and had the project named C-Tech Astronomy. But then why to just digress here for a moment and go back to mm-hmm. the Scrabble anagram scene? Mm-hmm. Why would figuring out that C-Tech Astronomy 
is an anagram for too many secrets. Mm -hmm. Let them know that, like, what? how did that tip off Marty and the gang? Well, I think in combination with Whistler's embedded analysis that the box basically decrypts Des, we're, we're then connecting the theory that, okay, well, this... The, whatever the, I, it doesn't even matter what the project name is. Honestly, I don't think that they get any real information from the C tech astronomy stuff, except they do use it in order to make this call. So the NSA then connects. So to continue, uh, now they put Bish through to, I don't know, somebody in the NSA and he identifies himself as Abby or Abbott. Mm, and yeah. We got the the polygraph so we can tell. We get this little thing of mother's like, yeah, that's really his name. The NSA is, starts working their way through the hops and they've got the first two. And Bisha asks if he's interested in C-Tech astronomy. The guy confirms we've got another hop down. Uh, mother says it's true. He asks if Abbott can make a deal. Guy says yes. Mother says it's true. Another another hop or two, they've almost got him. And finally, Bishop asks, hey, if I come in now, can you guarantee my safety? And, uh, you know, it's pause. He asks a couple times. Eventually the guy says yes. And mother's like, he's lying. Hang up. So the guy cannot. So they know they need more leverage at this mm -hmm. point. They've got to get the box back. And, but Marty doesn't know where it is. But Whistler chimes in. Hey, when you're kidnapped, what did it sound like? We got super hearing Whistler. What what do you make of the scene? The doing the <laughs> what do I make of the scene? I make out that if I was Marty and I was the one in that trunk, this movie would not have a happy ending. Because oh I yeah, would be like, not exactly. I was like, what did the roads sound like? I have no clue. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't know. You I know, wouldn't have did you go over speed bumps? A bridge? Okay, so he knows he went over a bridge. How does he know? So that? then they I, like, what does a bridge sound like when you go over? Oh, it, it sounds hollow. It sounds hollow. I'm. Okay, the next time that we're in the same place, I'm going to put you in the back of a... <laughs> you I don't even have a trunk. trunk. I don't have any car that has a trunk, but I would, I'm going to blindfold you. <laughs> but I could kind of get uh, maybe a, a bridge, but the whole thing of like... So at least they used it. They are able to figure out on two, for two of the bridges in the... So there's four, I guess, main bridges in the Bay Area, and they say the Golden Gate was fogged in, and they didn't... Bishop didn't hear a foghorn. Maybe. I couldn't remember probably if I heard a foghorn or not. And then was there a tunnel? I can get that a tunnel would sound different. So I guess there's a tunnel in the middle of the Bay Bridge, which I don't remember, but I'm sure there is. And then we're down to San Mateo Bridge and Dunbarton. And Whistler puts his headphones on. Did you notice anything about Whistler's headphones? Um, I did not. They're the same headphones we used to record the podcast. Really? Yeah. Oh, damn. I uh, kept noticing the headphones in the van. I kept looking at those yeah. those ones. But uh, okay, I didn't go back. Attention. I will go back and look. I will the headphones on your ears right now. So and then he's working on a, a synthesizer to generate some noise, and he makes uh, a very realistic noise of some car driving. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but then he remembers concrete scene. It's like, what do you hear? What do you hear? He just keeps saying that. I guess as though it's an insightful. And eventually, they get to. Uh, some concrete seams and, and then they figure out how far apart by Whistler, Whistler kind of 
making the seams closer. And then they go and they drive the bridges and I guess match up the speeds and boom, we got ourselves another van scene. Awesome. <laughs> so now they're in the van and Bishop is doing this. It's an extension of the, what do you hear? What do you hear? Uh, Bishop remembers railroad tracks in a cocktail party. And Whistler, we then realized that Whistler not only knows all this stuff about uh, noise and stuff, he also knows geography really well. Like he knows, uh, he's like, uh, head to the, you know, stay on Crescent, head to the reservoir. And we get there and it's birds and ducks, I guess. And, and Bish is like, hey, or uh, Whistler says, hey, you earned your honorary blind card. It's <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so they find an office building, Playtronics, but obviously we know it's a front. It's got laser fencing, which I don't know what it is. What what yeah, I was is. hoping <laughs> you would know what that is because I heard that too and was like, I've never heard of laser fencing before. <clears throat> yeah, not sure. High voltage around the perimeter, that makes more sense to me. Um, they start with a little stakeout and they use a directional mic and start hitting the windows. And this is maybe pretty realistic. Uh, Whistler can hear the hum of emergency exit light batteries, which makes sense. And, but they also pick up a voice saying, my voice is my passport. Please verify me. (laughs) Um, And they put it together that that's some type of voice biometric door. Third floor, Southwest lower corner, bursting with ultrasonic. How can he hear ultrasonic? I don't know because ultrasonic literally means it's too high to hear, but I don't know. It's cool. It's very well protected room. And obviously that's where they're hiding something important. So they decide to figure out, we can't go directly at that room. Let's figure out who's working next door. Carl comes in with the blueprints of the building that he paid 50 bucks for. Bish asks where he got the 50 bucks. Carl's like, oh, I stole it from mother's wallet. Bish is like, good deal, buddy. Uh, so they're stealing from their friends. Liz's mom wants to come and Crease is like, or the, and it's like, uh, now's not a good time. Crease explains the man trap to Bish. My first job, uh, or my first, one of my first like real jobs, serious jobs. I worked at a internet data center company uh, called Exodus Communications. And we had legit biometric man traps, like every day to work. I went into what was like the door opened up as like a half phone book thing. I stood on a platform that like weighed me to make sure there wasn't another person in the thing. And I would put my hand on a hand geometry scanner and it would let me through the man trap every day. Wow. I've never once gone through one of those (laughs) since, since this time between 2000 and 2003, but I have gone um, through one here in Dallas and it was, uh, pretty intense. What was intense was that you would come into their building, you'd get a man trap badge, and then you'd go into the man trap as your stuff was getting scanned. And then once you got out of that, they would take your man trap badge back and then give you the visitor badge. Ooh, that's intense. That's, yeah. that's intense protocol. So basically crease has figured out that this man trap exists because of that voice is my passport thing. So he's produced a replica man trap, you know, of the, the, uh, the two factor system. One of the factors is a key card. And one of the factors is voice recognition. And, um, so they need somebody's card, which they didn't apparently have card cloning technology yet because we'll see later that they actually steal a card 
and they need the voice, uh, but they think that they can beat it with tape. Right. So they also mentioned some motion sensors that'll make the man trap look easy. We see more about it later. So mother's then reviewing the video surveillance and has ID'd kind of what he thinks is the next door office worker. And it's Ned Ryerson from Groundhog's Day. That's how I'll refer to this person from now on. <laughs> uh, yeah. They zoom in, do a little bit of a Blade Runner enhance on this guy's rad Toyota 4Runner, second gen Toyota 4Runner with uh, 180 IQ plates. It's a great truck. Oh, my God. And I mean, that 180 IQ license plate, vanity plate, you know that this guy's going to be fun at parties. You know. Yeah, you actually have uh, a, a 115 IQ vanity license plate on your, your car, right? <laughs> yeah, so I was very uh, embarrassed when I saw that this guy has a 180 oh, IQ yeah. license plate. It's like, oh, you're really, yeah, too soon, I guess. Maybe you should up to here. <laughs> uh, so they start pulling background data on this guy from the DMV. Carl's stalking him. They look at his credit report, his like industry affiliations, and they end up dubbing this guy the world's most boring human. Which I'm not sure is true. I mean, he's got a rad forerunner. He designs robot dogs. I mean, he's cool. No? Yeah. I mean, this sounds, I feel, this sounds pretty. I feel bad for this guy until he becomes a lunatic. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Yes. Until he becomes the scariest person in the in the whole movie. Yeah. Mother, so Mother brings in the trash from the guy's house. They all start rummaging through it, a la kind of the Scrabble game where everybody's participating. They find a receipt from a computer dating service. And okay, we'll put them up on a date. They go through a couple of the people they've used in jobs before, a couple of the women, and including mother's ex-wife, Barbara, <laughs> which I like. And then Liz chimes in and says, hey, this guy is super organized. Look at this trash. He's meticulous, refined. He needs a, uh, he's looking for, you know, somebody refined, uh, anal. And they're like, oh, you got to do it, Liz. <laughs> so boom. Next scene, Liz shows up at a karaoke dim sum restaurant introduces herself to Ned and he seems like a great date. He immediately gets up, gets dim sum, <laughs> leaves her at the table. He's good with chopsticks, uh, which I am envious of because it, we have been in China together and, um, you know, Chinese people have complimented you on your chopsticks and asked me while I'm not as good as you at chopsticks before. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this guy's good. He's not the world's most boring human. He knows how to use chopsticks real good. Yeah, and I was you could just envision you and I sitting at the table next to this blind date happening, pounding like sixty dumplings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's eating gyoza. We would have definitely done done some damage on this restaurant. <laughs> and she's trying to get she's fishing for all the words for the voice print, and um, but he's got a mouthful of dumplings the entire time, so it's taken a while. So back at the office, they're doing a demo with the motion detector. And basically, it not only does motion, but also does heat. So because of the heat differential, Mother says, we can either you know wrap you in neoprene or raise the temperature of the room. But uh, we'll have to probably do the second thing, because if we wrap you in neoprene, you'll die of suffocation. <laughs> um, and they kind of say that vicious top speed because okay heat is one thing but the motion detection on the other hand is still two inches per second so cut back to the restaurant they're they're liz is wrapping it up and she's dialing up the flirting to get him to say the word passport and she has to say she's like i i don't know why she just wouldn't say the word passport and get him to re like hey do you have a passport and he'd probably be like no i don't have a passport <laughs> you know like <laughs> i don't know but she's like hey you know, hey, Dennis, Dennis, psst, 
Dennis. Kev, Kev. You know what word I find intoxicating? <laughs> what word is that? And just I don't know if I, it's, I'm embarrassed to say, but if you would, I don't know. If, no, you think what? it's too much? Would I mean say is it what? too much? If I no, tell me. Passport. <laughs> oh, dog. Passport. Oh my god. Okay, let's go. Yep, that's it. Hey, uh, hey, Dennis. You want to have breakfast with me sometime? Oh my gosh, I wrote this down as the cringiest line in the entire freaking. Dennis, you want to have breakfast sometime? Yeah, I do. I would love to. Should I should I call you or should I not you? <laughs> uh, Is this the first instance of this terrible line? Like, did this did this popularize it or was this building on a bad line already? Like, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. This is I don't recognize this. So, it, it, oh, I I have heard this, but I don't know if I like if this became a thing that people said after the movie. So, all right, back at the office, Whistler's editing the tape together, and we got the 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 main heist scene. Right, so the job's on. Carl comes in. He's a gardener. Needs to use the toilet. Um, he gets uh, into this. Then, so they let him use the toilet or go to the bathroom. He pops up in the ceiling, ceiling tile. Climbs over to the HVAC boiler room, starts raising the room on the or raising the temp in that room. Hmm. And the guard at the front desk actually notices he's gone, which I don't think would happen, and is about to report it when he sees somebody in the same uniform outside, which didn't like. Okay, is there only one gardener that works on this massive <laughs> office? Property? That's what I was thinking too. Is it like the red hat that's supposed to make him unique or something? The Forty ers hat? Because I'm thinking. I mean, not to give everything away, but it's like you have skinny ass River Phoenix walk in, and then you have Dan Aykroyd out front wearing the same thing, but who is easily three River Phoenixes wide. Okay. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's probably a soft spot in the movie. I think that they should have just been like, yeah, nobody would ever pay attention to the guy who went to the bathroom, right? I mean, would anybody notice that he didn't come out? I don't think so. Uh, I certainly don't think so. It seemed like really quick too. I mean, I know it's a movie and all the time, but like he like yeah. is kind of like, you know, what keeps glancing at his wristwatch. It's, it's like almost as if he's timing him as how long he's been in the bathroom. Uh, yeah. And okay. So anyway, Carl's in like, he gets his way to the HVAC via the world's biggest air duct. I don't think air ducts are this big, but it's kind of a movie trope, uh, and which connects to an elevator shaft. He jumps on the elevator he gets to the boiler room without too much problem. And then the next night, Liz is at Ned's house, and she swipes his wallet, passes his window out. Mother pulls the access card. This is something we can comment on. I guess they didn't have the card cloning technology that we have today, mm. but this is not how we would, we would not use probably that. If we had access to the card, we could pretty much immediately mm-hmm. copy it and use and replay it we wouldn't use the original card right correct someone knocks on the door as a kind of a distraction she gets the card back in or uh she gets the wallet back into place the card's gone and back at playtronics bish is on his way in and mother and Chris are in the van mother's talking about cattle mutilations another some kind of conspiracy <laughs> theory Marty's making his way in. He plants a box next to the camera in the stairwell. So here's, this is something I thought about, right? What is that box that he plants in the stairwell? Basically, 
it gives the surveillance van access to all of the video feeds. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's my theory. The box must be wrapping around or connected into a coaxial cable like you would like we Mm -hmm. had like, you know, okay. You had a piece of coax that had 48, you know, 50 channels on it. Right. To plug into, you know, like the coming out of the cable box. So those, and then all of the video are all of the video cameras in that must be connected to the same bus coax network, meaning like just one, you know, one single feed of coax and they're all set to different channels, right? So then you would, if you plugged in a monitor, you could tune through all those channels across the things. Now, each one of those, that that definitely could be true and probably was some, a valid architecture of these cameras. And I think that that little box would then have to be a RF amplifier, and it did have a short antenna to transmit that signal out. Now, when I was a kid, I did once pl- connect a aerial like TV antenna, like a VHF mm-hmm. aerial antenna to the output of a VCR and then tune my TV with another aerial to channel three. And it did work a little bit. Oh, wow. So that's, that's my backup for the fact that that's basically the principle in use here. You're going to amplify, mm. you know, that coaxial signal via RF, and then you would just tune those monitors into the different channels. Now, the box is a little small for that, especially if we're to presume that the box, I mean, he doesn't connect too many cables to the box. So if it were to be valid, he'd probably have to connect it to a pretty serious power source because that amount of amplification would probably take a pretty serious power source. And batteries weren't all that good at the time, especially for that form factor. And the antennas are kind of small too. So I'm doing work for the movie, but that would be, if I were going to make sense of what that would be, that's probably what I would describe it as. Hmm. Well, I will go with you on that because I'd never mess around with uh, plugging stuff into my uh, (laughs) output of my VHS player. Oh yeah. Well, there you go. So those things, you know, they're, they're very, they're transmitters because they transmit over, but they're not designed for like over air mm-hmm. They're designed for coaxial transmit. Um, so very low power. <clears throat> so uh, next up, Marty gets that man trap. He uses the dictation machine. He's so when he starts it, it's goes way too fast. And it's like, uh, please slow down. Anyway, uses voice, uh, Ned's voice print from the record. It works. Sounds pretty choppy to me. Uh, maybe not the world's best biometric. Maybe this is why voice print didn't become a huge biometric vector, I guess, for people to use in security controls. Marty gets into Ned's office, starts organizing some gear. Carl's in the boiler room, turning up the the temp. Uh, he, he basically gets the temp of the room up to 98.6 Fahrenheit. Uh, I don't know what that is, but uh, in Celsius, but 98.6 Fahrenheit is body temp. So he gets it up to body temp. Bish hops over through the ceiling tiles and I guess he lowers an ultrasound camera because the motion detectors are using ultrasonic or he's using, 
yeah, I think he's using some type of ultrasonic ca- camera to find a dead spot so that he can lower himself down into the dead spot. That's what I gathered from that. Oh yeah, method. totally. I mean, that's what he says in there. He says he finds like a three three by three dead spot. Yeah, but the, uh, the so but the the sensors are ultrasonic. That's what we got from before from Bish or from Whistler listening to the thing. Ah, uh, yes. So that camera must be some type of ultrasound to visual camera. I think you're right. And by the way, you didn't mention the cute little fishing rod that he uses to put it down through. Yeah, I don't even, it's not like a, I don't know. Yeah, it looked weird. It looked like a very, very, like a craftsman. Like, it looked like a, like a, a I don't like know. Like a play some, school some of, fishing thing. Yeah. Oh, you thought, I thought it looked kind of, I don't know, like a artist, like, maybe more of an antique fishing around. Oh my gosh. So, I don't know. But he does lower himself down pretty gracefully for a 56 year old. He does more Actually, gracefully than you or I would lower ourselves. <laughs> absolutely. Down absolutely. One thing that you did not mention, because I'm going to be a Debbie Downer on this later. When Bish goes in and uses the card, what do we see when he uses, uh, um, the groundhog days ID card? What happens like behind the front desk? Oh, I don't know. It logs Werner's uh, the uh, the time that he uses his car to go into the building, right? Oh, yeah. And so they should have the log. They should pull up the log. They have the log, and it has the t- the date, you know, the d- the timestamp of when he enters in there. And the whole reason that Mother was able to identify that Werner was the guy was that he was so regimented, like in the office next to. Um, you know, Cosmos is that he's, he keeps such a strict schedule. Mm -hmm. So immediately one of the things that we hear about like anomaly detection in logins, like I feel like I hear about that a lot now, Mm -hmm. you know, just checking like, Oh, is this unusual for this person to be logging in or accessing this thing at such and such time would have ruined the movie. If Playtronics had to use this, but maybe he usually goes in at night to do a little extra work, get crank out some extra robot dogs. And he's just not doing that tonight because he's got this hot computer date. Mm, I don't know. Maybe the anomaly is that he wouldn't be checking in. Huh? Oh, maybe, maybe mm, check me. Okay. Uh, back well, at Ned's we'll apartment, by the way, yeah. yes. he's apologizing for overcooking carrots and shows her this robot dog. I've been talking about for <laughs> a half hour. <laughs> uh, he designed the voice recognition chip in the robot dog. Probably also the same crappy voice recognition chip in the man trap is is my thoughts uh she goes to use the bathroom he gives her directions that include to walk down the hall the word walk triggers the stupid robot dog no 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 no. hold on hold on hold on this is this i found creepy she asks not for the bathroom to use his telephone and he's like Oh. oh that's in my bedroom and it's like you have one single telephone in your entire place and it's in your bedroom. That seems unusual mm. to me. Oh, okay. I didn't even catch that. Yeah. So I'm like, at this point, I'm like, the scariest person in this whole movie is this guy, and I'm. Oh yeah. Worried. I mean, he gets scary here. So anyway, so the not the do- robot dog overhears the word "walk." He no- he walks down the counter, knocks off her purse. Then Ned picks up and sees that her ID. She's not who she says she is, and he then gets scary. Back in Cosmo's office, Bish is walking super slow, like we saw before he has to. And uh, he's like, and and then they cut back 
And it's not just Ned anymore. It's like super alpha Ned and he's going to take her in to play Tronic. So mother and Kreese are arguing about the Kennedy assassination and Ned pulls in in that rad forerunner to play Tronics with Liz and Kreese tells Bish to hurry because, but he's stuck at two inches per second. He can't hurry, right? He says the one thing he can't do is hurry. And then he's like, gets to the box. It's very Indiana Jones idol, right? When he's got to like make this switch with the, the box. So I did like that. Um, Meanwhile, Ned's manhandling, Ned's bringing Liz in, manhandling her, drags her into corporate security. He's putting together, he has put together the whole like recording thing. Like he thought back and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, you really wanted to hear me say passport. Uh, like he's got the whole thing figured out. Mm. Notices that at this point that his ID card is missing. So the guards at that point should do your, at least do your log check, which they don't do. Uh, Marty's walking slow-mo. <clears throat> downstairs 30 something is back and now he looks like a mobster <laughs> he's like got a new outfit on and bad cop wallace is there too and i hope they're compensated for all this overtime like these guys really put in the hours oh yeah i mean you dream of having dedicated employees like these guys <sighs> yeah so they all go to ned's office right uh basically 30 something wallace Cosmo's there and then Ned is dragging Liz by the hair into the office <laughs> and everything looks okay. So they're about to let go, Liz go, but Liz says the last time I'm going to go on a computer date. And I guess it's so shocking that a computer with if its brilliant algorithm would match a smoke show like Liz with a lame duck like Ned Ryerson. <laughs> so Cosmo's like, no way he knows something's up and he knows it's Marty. And he says it with a very odd accent. <laughs> so now this is the weirdest little moment in this movie is when Ben Kingsley does a little jog back to his office. <laughs> this little jog he does is shockingly odd. <laughs> like he's wearing a suit and he does this quick, I don't know. It just looks ridiculous. And then he gets to his office, like, why is it so hot in here? Sees the box is missing. And then it's like, uh, Darth Vader yells, Marty. Oh, <laughs> I just love that. And then boom. And by the way, got the arms. That, yeah. <laughs> Siren, shotguns, guards everywhere, including like the boiler room where Carl still is, right? Um, Man. It keeps going. Crease and Mother are giving directions to Carl and Bish on how to get out, right? And they're arguing about it. Doesn't seem too helpful. A guard finds the transmitter we talked about and so and disconnects it. So Crease and Mother are now blind. And the bad cop uh, who punches people in the face has now got a shotgun. And here's Marty's earpiece. So here's here's my my challenge on this. This guy has shown himself in this scene to fire guns without hearing protection. Is this guy after however many years of uh, shooting guns without hearing, hearing protection, going to hear this little <laughs> earpiece through a ceiling? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. It seems implausible to me. I agree that, uh, but he hears it and he starts just crushing rounds into the ceiling out of this Mossberg 590. And, uh, a lot of shotgunnery. Cosmo tells him to stop over the PA, starts talking to Marty directly. And uh, he basically says a lot of weird 
I don't know. It's almost babbling stuff, but the basic point is that he's got Liz. Marty has to bring the box to his office and he, and he promises he won't kill him. So Bish says he's going in, removes a panel from the seal and Wallace does the kind of ever popular, like extra shotgun pump. No, which at this point. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Hold on. He did yeah. not do that. This is actually a kudos I have for this movie. Oh, he did. I said there was no gratuitous racking of the shotgun here. Because typically, yes, you take off that panel and they're going to rack the, sh- you know, every single time they're threatening to pull the trigger. I thought shot. he does pump it then. I don't think so. Well, okay. May- I don't, I thought he does, did. And let I'll just say, instinctively when you're shooting a shotgun, after you shoot, you pump it. Exactly. Especially in this situation. So you wouldn't. You know, if he does pump it, he's wrong because it's likely that the last time he shot at the ceiling after that last shot, he would instinctively pump it. Yes. So if he pumped it again, he'd just be dumping shells onto it. Exactly. So watch people watch it for themselves. If you see the pump after, you know, uh, if you see the pump without somebody shooting, it's probably dumping around on the ground. Um, One more so thing Marty, here, though. Yeah, go ahead. In the rambling that that Cosmo is doing over this. Oh, yeah, is it? It's like gobbledygook. It is gobbledygook. <laughs> and at one point, he blames him for not ever having a girlfriend. So he has like a weird insult oh, it's bad. to like this rant. Uh, this is by far, like this is a great movie. Like, I mean, it is really great. If you are going to, it's it's weird that like the biggest improvement to this movie is you got to get Ben Kingsley out of there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that he's is, Well, I don't... I, it's, something... it's crazy to say. Ben Kingsley is amazing in a lot of movies. In this movie, get him out of there. And put in the guy from the beginning, right? That's a great actor. And clean up what his motivation is. Exactly. Clean up what is he mad at. He, he, he wavers between wanting his friend to join him in this anarchist ideal of bringing down using this box to basically crash. I guess we didn't even talk about this, but his, his real desire seems to be when they're, when they're at the cray and they're, you know, 20 minutes ago, we are talking about her uh, maybe an hour ago, <laughs> but they're talking. And his idea is like, well, I want to crash the system. Everybody goes back to the stone age and nobody knows who owns what land. It seems unrealistic, but even his motivation, if it was realistic is, is weird. He's like half, He's half hurt that his friend didn't get caught. He did rat out his friend, right? Which is, I mean, because Martin Bryce was on the run, so they know Martin Bryce from Cosmo. So if anything, Martin or Bish probably has a grudge against Cosmo for riding him out, right? Mm -hmm. If you get pinched, you know, for stealing money from the Republican National Convention and rat me out, I'm going to be mad. (laughs) <laughs> so, but then also it's like a weird mix of like, Hey, join me. It's almost like very Darth Vader, like join me or, or I'll have to crush you. <laughs> I don't, yes. It's just very odd motivation. And at this point, so Cosmos, you know, makes Marty come into the office because he's got Liz and Liz again, seems way too calm. Like she's cracking jokes, which I like, but, and then 30 something chambers, his pistol, <laughs> and Marty is like, Hey, I brought you the box. You said you wouldn't kill me. Um, and Cosmo says, yeah, you're right. I can't kill you. 
Dennis, kill Marty. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> orders his that. death. Yes. And bad cop Wallace is super stoked. And Bish cues Carl to smash the ceiling and start wrestling around. <laughs> so River Phoenix saves the day here. Liz ends up getting the handgun and fires around in the ceiling. It's good that nobody, it's good that mother wasn't up in the ceiling <laughs> at this point because two it. seconds ago she could have killed Carl. <laughs> Marty gets the gun, does the same weird gun, gun punch back in Wallace's face <laughs> that he's been getting hit with all movie long. I just feel like gun they, punching someone too would really hurt your hand. Well, it's, I don't know if it hurts your hand, but it's really like tactically unsound because you're basically handing your gun to somebody <laughs> in hopes that you'd hit him with. Like it just, it's, it's bad. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, our tactical listeners are not gonna like that move. Um, but so they flee to the roof. They're on the fire escape. They call Crease on the radio and Crease is like, okay, we'll be right over. But they get rolled immediately by security, right? So Crease and Mother are being held at gunpoint, but Whistler is still in the back of the van. Mm. And Whistler's on the radio and Marty says, hey, you got to come get us. So now we get this uh, Whistler's driving around blind, which is great. Meanwhile, Two seconds after Whistler takes off driving blind based on Marty's direction, Crease goes Rambo and gets, <laughs> you know, gets, puts the one uh, PG 13 F word back into the movie <laughs> as Whistler drives away. So it's kind of like, oh, maybe you should have waited two seconds for Crease to kick those guys' ass and he would have just gotten in the van. Okay. But- yeah. And that's one of my Debbie Dunner points right there is that. He literally, the second he puts the car into or the van into reverse, Crease disables the two, disarms and disables the yeah. two guys. And Whistler has impeccable hearing. So just be like, hey, we took the oh, bad guys out. Sure. We took them out. You can hear us stop the van. I'll drive now. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, valid. He is wearing headphones. So who knows how loud the mm. headphones are or how good the headphones okay, are. Okay. Well, I've got another Debbie Donner point in like. Uh, 30 seconds from now too. So let's, let's get going. So we're, we're on the rooftop and Cosmo, (laughs) Cosmo's got a gun and he's as dangerous with his gun as with his weird accent. (laughs) Cosmo wants the box, uh, but wants, I guess again, now he's like, Hey, are you sure you don't want to join me? Cosmo gives another kind of anarchist diatribe that is at this point, just confusing and old. And Marty gives him a box. And Marty tells Cosmo that if he wants to stop him from walking away, he'll have to pull the trigger and let him walk away. But so I guess he's just like, you're not going to kill me um, and trust that. And so Bish walks away. Cosmo then opens the box. It's empty. It's the practice one. Mother got uh, Bish to practice with. Okay. This is a, yet a different Debbie Downer mm-hmm. point. Yep. Couldn't we have avoid? Okay, so the, you tell me if this is if this is making sense. Bish must have walked into the building with that dummy box. Yeah. Okay. You for sure did. Why did Bish not do the Indiana Jones replace the real box with the dummy box? Because ah, then the rest of this that would not to, have. But doesn't he get that? That would oh. have prevented the whole Marty scream. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, well, it wouldn't prevent it necessarily the oh, yes, it would yeah, maybe because he yeah, sees that the right. box is missing. So it's like so now he's just running around with two boxes in his backpack. That doesn't yeah, make any sense. I guess so. 
uh, yeah, I, there's a point in there. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we, we'd have to probably keep better track of everything, but I think you're right that in general, I mean, maybe the box, maybe he couldn't carry the box or it wasn't practical to carry the box because you had to do the super slow-mo stuff, or maybe he couldn't lower himself down holding the box and the box was in the rafters. Why would you bring the empty box into the building in the first? Okay, place? I don't know that. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't know, but it works. It's a stretch. Okay. So they're back at the. Uh, anyway, so Cosmo gives another anarchist diatribe. Marty walks away. Cosmo opens the box. It's empty. Uh, inside the van, Misha's got the real box. We know that now. So they go back to the office, and now the wait, real. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay go, hold go, on, go. hold on. Now I freaking love the Whistler being like driving across the parking lot to come pick them up. Like, oh, and yeah. obviously, ostensibly, this is to save time, right? Like, Bish and the team are leaving the building. They want the van to come to them because it's much faster, right? Uh, oh, I thought they couldn't jump down. Or something. No, I no, because uh, what's his face does the cool the River Phoenix does like that kind of cool thing where you put your feet on the outside of the ladder and you like slide down uh, for a little bit. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, by the time Whistler, okay, so let's agree on the timeline, right? Whistler puts a van into reverse. Two seconds later, yeah, Crease, Mar- mother and mother and Crease run up. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so by the time that Whistler crashes into the side of the building, <laughs> yeah. two two seconds after that, they they run up. So like basically, yeah. driving the van is two seconds faster than running across the parking lot. Yeah, and also, uh, you drive over a curb like that, you're gonna get a flat tire, especially <laughs> in that van with that amount of weight. Anyway, uh, that that okay. okay. Go ahead. In, inside the, the van, basically got the real box. Now they're back at the super loft. Yes. Uh, and, but the real NSA is there. We got James Earl Jones is Abby or Abbott, and he wants the box. But the guys at this point start group explaining that they know that the box is only really useful to the NSA to spy domestically mm. because the rest of the world hasn't standardized on this encryption algorithm. So it's not like they're going to use this box to spy on Russians. So then they kind of infer, okay, but okay, here's, I mean, it's factual at this point. It's not politics. In 2005, uh, we learned that uh, AT&T had cooperated with the NSA by producing this big fiber split in, do you know where that was, that was found? No. Coincidentally, San Francisco. Hmm. <laughs> Um, so in, in a big San Francisco AT&T installation, they had split off in, in other places too, I'm sure. But in, in 2005, you know, it was, uh, uh, became public that the NSA was, uh, you know, under, under some, some, uh, executive orders and, and some other things they legally, illegally hard to tell at this point. I'm not an expert on any of that, but the NSA was monitoring domestic communications. Um, so the guys use this as a bargaining chip, right? So here's the, we get another round. There's, there's like three or four times in this movie where we kind of go through and get some type of funny piece of information about what people want or, you know, whatever. And this time, so Bish obviously wants a clean record record. Mother wants a Winnebago, which he says before, like, what are you going to do with the mother? So, and Chris wants that trip to Europe. So they kind of repeat. And at this point, Carl River Phoenix is like, 
um, the cute girl with the Uzi. I uh, can I get a date with her? And James Earl Jones is like, I'm not, I can't give you a date with somebody, but she is so flattered that he could get anything in the world and ask for her number that she just gives him the number. So he's good to go. Whistler asked for peace on earth. And Abby's just like, I don't, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> and Liz just like, no, I'm cool. <laughs> yeah. Liz, um, what the heck? That That's the, yeah, she should get something. I huh? love this ending. And that still gets me every single time. Just freaking ask for something. Yeah. What, what would you, if you were Liz, what would you want? I'd be like, hey, the other NSA guy said that we were going to get 175 grand. That's what I want. <laughs> Just ask for the money. Yeah, why not? She's not into money. She has a she has enough money. You saw her. Her place was apartment. amazing. Yeah, I, Although she should probably ask for somebody to clean up her apartment <laughs> after they destroyed <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, she needs with, at least with yes. the antennas. Yeah, yeah. security <laughs> deposit back or something. Yeah, can somebody come and just like clean up all this antenna from my apartment? Um, so Marty does while they're walking out. Says the box didn't work. Never did. And Abbott says he doesn't care. What's important that the box didn't exist. Abby leaves and Liz asks Marty about the box. And she's like, hey, you just told him the box didn't work. You know, aren't they just going to see that it does work? And Marty pulls out a little daughter card that has, I guess, the all of the algorithm on that, that box. So the box won't really. Now, don't you think 10 minutes later, Abby would have returned and be like, hey, I see the. <laughs> the PCM CIA slot that contained this, this important card. What, what happened to that? You know, like, <laughs> I don't know. It seems, seems pretty broken to me, but the, and then movies over and the, we get a little, the last little thing we heard is, uh, you know, he, Marty's back to his old tricks. He's transferred all the money from the Republic national convention to a combination of amnesty, international Greenpeace, and the American Negro college fund. That's, that's how we, round this out no that's i thought that that is uh james Earl jones making good on whistler's request don't think so i totally i think, think so. that that's oh really well when shoot. okay i now whistler that i see wants it always occurred no no i yeah i definitely think that marty used the daughter card to do those transactions interesting James Earl Jones for sure wouldn't take money out of the RNC account. I mean, this is Bush, Bush one yeah, era. That's right. He works for, and Bush was a big CIA guy, right? Yeah, you're right. Let's see. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, I didn't. Uh... Okay. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I feel like I learned something new from this movie. <laughs> Hopefully you learned more than that after this two hours and 35 minutes. Of <laughs> 30 minutes longer by than line, the actual movie. One, one man show of me reading through this, but it's, it's good. It's the, it's, it's definitely, yeah. If, if war games is the, the OG hacker movie, this is the OG red teaming movie. And there's some, some pretty good, some pretty real social engineering, um, I think it does do a good job of framing kind of those physical security um, situations. And it definitely also captures the mood of that type of stuff. I think of like, I don't know, whenever, anytime I've ever been near it, it's just like, yeah, it's just, I'm so nervous. And it does kind of capture that energy. So, Oh, I thought it was great. And like, I loved yeah. the scene where they really had to think on their feet in the office, the funny scene with like the, uh, Rishkoff or whatever her, you know, her name was. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was great. Yeah. Rishka or Rishkoff. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. But this was All good. Right. Okay, well, uh, we got one more left in the summer blockbuster list. What is in it? What do you? What are we gonna do? The net. We've gone good, bad, good. So it's time for a bad one. Huh? <laughs> time for a bad one. The net, I think, is what is up next. We're doing the net. Ugh. I, I actually, yeah, I think we're gonna see some, some. Uh, I, I think the net is generally panned by critics, but uh, I, I think it's gonna. It's going to surprise people how well the net holds up. I, yeah. I, there's That's something- my, I haven't rewatched it for a long time, but I think that there's some stuff that was ridiculous back then that became a lot more mainstream. Yeah. I, I'm interested because this is definitely in the hackers category for me where I watched it once or maybe, no, like once or twice and then never watched it again. But I feel like I really like it. So I'm like, oh, this- the net is. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a huge Sandy B fan. Oh, yeah. But uh I know, for, I know for a fact. Sometime within the past three to five years, there's something about like the pizza order. Like she uses a computer program to order pizza, and there was some, uh-huh. I like read an article. Yeah. So it was like some somehow I read something about that, and it was referencing the net about the pizza ordering app or something. Was that? Was that is that like a famous thing that people remember from that movie, or was I can't? I, I don't know it. if it was just like a niche article that I was reading or whatever it was, but I just remember. I don't. I remember the scene in the movie where she orders the pizza because it, she, it also like is graphically like putting out. It looks like a pretty good pizza graphically when she does it. <laughs> okay, so I'm kind of excited to see that part again too. See if it jogs my memory on what yeah. the heck it was that I was reading about that. Yeah, sounds good, man. Um. All right. Well. This was a uh, a lot to get through, but I and it kind of speaks for itself. It didn't need a lot of I don't know my technical analysis. Hopefully, I had some some decent technical analysis in there with some of the. Oh, I thought you did good. The no, I thought stuff. you definitely did. Oh, I don't. But you guys, you guys don't need me anymore. I'm done. We'll watch the net, and then we'll be we'll get back to our. Uh, and this movie did convince me. It's it is easier for us to have profound things to say about software security or application security than it is to maybe do these movie reviews <laughs> of like yeah i mean this movie doesn't need to be reviewed it's so good just watch it just but, watch it uh, yeah hopefully people enjoy it so okay people were clamoring for this one we didn't do we didn't just say oh we're gonna do another one we had multiple requests for this so. <laughs> multiple more than one requests yes <laughs> there was at least two requests you know who you are <laughs> and enjoy sneakers 1992, Universal Studios. Robert Redford, Mary McDonald, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, Sidney Poitier, James Earl Jones. Okay, are you just trying to get us at two minutes and 40 seconds? Uh, nope, we're going to cut it early. Seven, <laughs> okay. Six. Hook it up All right, and bye. do <laughs> terrible bye. things with it. Nope. In a surprise announcement, the Republican National Committee has revealed it is bankrupt. A spokesman for the party said they had plenty of money in their accounts last week, but today they just don't know where the money has gone. But not everybody's going begging. Amnesty International, Greenpeace, and the United Negro College Fund announced record earnings this week, due mostly to large anonymous donations. 